0: at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group, void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. At Lexia, we know literacy changes lives. As the gateway to the future for every student, literacy can boost their confidence and help them realize their full potential. Based on the science of reading, our literacy programs, along with all of those dedicated educators, can change the path of students' lives forever. We believe literacy can and should be for all. That's why at Lexia, we're all for literacy. Being a parent can be really challenging.
1: Hey folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go in, rate this podcast, uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the team house and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes.
2: Yeah, if if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. (laughs) Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage.
1: The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to episode 141 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with my co-host, David Park. Tonight, we are here with a special guest, Eric Miaris. He um, served as an Army Special Mission Unit Operator. Um, Just as a way of introduction, I'm just going to tell a little bit of a funny anecdote myself about when I was a young Ranger and we went out to the border of Pakistan in 2004 and when we got out there there was already an american where we were there to set up camp uh up on a hilltop out there by himself one american with an afghan interpreter and they're looking down at the border control point with pakistan and when we'd go up there to bring him like some food and water this dude had like a big beard he was wearing i think like blue jeans and maybe a camo top had all these like hemp necklaces on and everything and we were just as young rangers were looking at this guy like who is this dude and what in the world is he doing up here and he was like super chill like oh hang loose my dude and but it was clear that he'd been left out in the sun a little bit too long It's like hey maybe this guy (laughs) needs (laughs) needs to be brought back uh, to chill out in the fob and watch some dvds like uh, like a a normal uh, soldier deployed to afghanistan but I always tell that funny little anecdote there um, to allude to the fact that JSOC has these operators who are deployed, sometimes in singleton missions, in highly compartmentalized operations. And even within the military, even in the special operations community, oftentimes very little, if anything, is known about those guys or what they do. Uh, So I'm very pleased to have Eric on the show tonight and just pull back the curtain just a little bit and tell Americans about what it is that some of these guys in these programs do. So, Eric, thank you for joining us tonight.
3: Absolutely. Hey, it's, uh, it's fun. I'm excited to be here. Uh, you guys are great. Um, I-, I love watching your shows. I love getting into the spec ops and the Intel side of, the, of this world. So thank you very much for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man. And could you start off uh, with telling us, uh, as we ask all of our guests about their origin story, about your your origins growing up in Miami as a kid and kind of the path that eventually took you, well, first into the Marine Corps, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I came to America, if you would, uh, in my mom's belly. Uh, my mom is pregnant, uh, and uh, her, my grandmother, grandfather, and uh, her, her siblings um, left in i want to say it was may uh, of 1971 they were able to catch essentially the last flight one of the last flights that was leaving cuba uh into the u.s so very fortunate that we got that plan and that we got uh, welcomed welcome to the united states with with open arms uh, since essentially like you know most cubans they either go to hialeah miami or they head up north uh, i want to say it's like new jersey somewhere uh but we ended up uh, obviously in the in the Hialeah area, so uh, born and raised there uh, until I was 18. Essentially, you know, uh, I went to uh, private school, which was a bilingual Cuban American school. So my my upbringing was always sort of that that dual U.S. Cuban heritage. Um, you know, speaking Spanish in the streets of Hialeah. Um, and then, um, you know, just to, to mention raised uh, who, uh, by, essentially was uh, like my my stepdad, uh, my mom never married, but uh, well, for our intents we personal call him Mr. Clean, he kind of raised me um, and instilled sort of this level of patriotism and, and this uh, this vision of wanting to do this unique sort of um, cloak and dagger type work to, to keep it simple with what he had done in sort of the Bay of Pigs uh, aspects of it. Um, And so in 1991, or the year earlier, I joined the Marine Corps, Uh, originally was supposed to be active duty to go into infantry. I think I also had seen that, you know, force recon video and that's what I wanted to do. But I I wanted to leave Hialeah uh, or I would have ended up either, you know, in jail, in trouble. um, And so I I went off, I went off into the Marine Corps um, to do infantry. Uh, So I'll go ahead and stop there.
1: Well, you, you spent quite a bit of time in the Marines, too, didn't you? And um, ser- served as a uh, scout sniper, if I recall correctly.
3: Yeah, so I um, ended up doing uh, just shy uh, of six years, which I'll cover why I I didn't finish that, that full contract later on as we talked to the reasons going into into the Army. Um, so, you know, I got finagled by, by my recruiter, which, you know, 29 years later, I, I've learned from other you know folks that I've talked to that, they also got host by their recruiters. And so my, my, my contract ended up being in the reserves um, with the promise that once I came back from basic training or from you know, a school of infantry or my trade that I would then go on active duty. And so for those five and a half years, I spent just about every day trying to get back, get onto active duty or do as much active duty um, schools or, or floats or whatever I can be part of in order to kind of earn a spot uh, to be able to, for the Marine Corps to bring me back on. And so essentially I was a, uh, a tow gunner in Miami, which I didn't even know we had that capability. Uh, interestingly, those guys had just came back from the Gulf War. So my first checking in was, a, you know, to being a tow gunner, uh, which the highlight was I did get to shoot, you know, a highly a kid who got to shoot a tow missile. Uh, that was really cool. Uh, did that for a little bit. And then I found out, Um, as I was trying to continue that process that there was uh, an ability to go to airborne in an organization in West Palm Beach um, that was an Anglican, Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. And so that's where I first went to airborne school as a Marine. And actually, ironically enough, I got to go to um, Pathfinder as a Marine uh, because of that organization. So I I did Forward Observer, Naval Gunfire for a little bit and then really found um, what I I really enjoyed uh, in my time in the Marine Corps. Uh, I went to a state platoon surveillance target acquisition uh, up in the New Orleans area. So I I was with them in and out for about uh, three or four years, and that's actually where where I I worked as a you know, regular uh, spotter, and then I became uh, a scout sniper, um, and then spent the time doing um, work with the um, JTF six doing counter narcotics
2: missions.
1: That's pretty cool. So yeah, we've uh, had a few people on that did JTF six ops. Yeah. Uh... That, that was a big money
2: before nine eleven. That was like the cool
1: thing to do before nine eleven. Yeah, yeah was that, that was
2: like, where all the action was. Yeah.
1: And, and then how did uh, you make that transition over to the Army? What, what what was that kind of point and what kind of led you to that decision?
3: Yeah, so uh, when I was in state between as a Marine, I was young, dumb, uh, not focused in college. Uh, you know, just I want to preface that that a lot of the reason and sense of urgency – to get back on active duty is I ultimately wanted to kind of cut my teeth at the Marine. And I, and I had aspirations um, when I was in high school and I, and I knew I wanted to join the military and particular the Marine Corps that ultimately I wanted to either go to the CIA or I wanted to go uh, into the FBI. I think the FBI was more because one of my uncles was just scared that I'd be killed for some reason. So I, I, I threw in the hat, I'd go to the FBI, right. But I knew where I wanted, what I wanted to go do. And so I, the path was, you know, Go to the Marine Corps do your college and then and then go apply because I, I, I didn't see I didn't think I was gonna be in the Marine Corps that long. And so when I was in New Orleans, you know, there was a whole lot of partying, a whole lot of you know and I almost got to a point where I was like, man, I'm gonna lose my liver or whatever <laughs> else that's back there. So I'm like I'm gonna come back to Miami so I can at least get back to school because you don't have all the great influences that you did in New Orleans. And so when I came back to Miami, um, I think I was going back to the Anglico unit. Then I I met my my first wife. And then uh, it was kind of a relationship, of friendship. Uh, and at that point, she was uh, looking to go into the National Guard, as most people did in that time frame. This is 97 for college money. And so she's like, I'm going to be this linguist in the Army and do this intel stuff. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Where, where are we going? Monterey, California. I was like, okay, that'll be cool. So I went as a military spouse to uh, essentially to Monterey, Fort Ord. Um, and then I was like, are you kidding me? Is this what the army does? Right? So I saw a DLI from a spouse perspective. Um, and then I started to do my research again. And as I'm over there, there wasn't, I think the only closest unit was like a uh, reserve force recon unit up in Nevada. I'm like, man, I don't want to travel over there. Um, and then I just, I did some some thinking, some soul searching really. And I was like, well, okay, well maybe how about going to the army as an option? Let's do this military intelligence. Cause I thought that that would align best at that point with going to the CIA, right? Or, or, or going to go do intel work, um, as I had planned and that I would ultimately focus, focus on, on school. And so I, I, I made a mistake, joined the National Guard for a month. Same thing, horrible contract uh, aspects. Um, and then just the next day after, um, I joined active duty and then, um, signed in some fort somewhere with a bunch of other poor former Marines that were learning how to be in the army.
1: <laughs> and, and what uh, you went into the army on what was your uh what was your mos i mean it was an intel job this time right
3: yeah it's a uh, 98 golf so that was the uh sigint electronic warfare interceptor cool. Cool.
1: Yeah. and that uh, i'm do you want to talk a little bit about you know what that job entailed and where you got assigned
3: yeah no absolutely yeah so when i came in uh because it'll probably come up later on, you know, I was a proud E5 in, in, in the Marine Corps, uh, and part of this whole negotiation too was like, Hey, you're gonna be an E4. I'm like, Oh, I get to be a corporal, right? Now you get to be a specialist. I'm like, I'm a specialist of what, right? So, <laughs> I started off my army career with a you know, bunch of other Marines, get a sea bag full of clothing that they didn't even teach me how to wear, uh, and then. <laughs> And then, and then uh, you know, flew back to DLI, which was, by the way, uh, phenomenal. I learned so much because uh, I was a careerist. So I didn't have to apply to all of those um, rules that were there. And actually, uh, interestingly, I met uh, what would later on would be three other former unit members that I would then go through selection with. Um, I think it was the conversations we had earlier that just kind of jarred that memory. So that was pretty neat. It was an amazing time. Uh, and so I, 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 DLI, from timing with my, my former spouse who was still learning, I, I finished the uh, Spanish and then went to Goodfellow Air Force Base to go learn at that time to be a 98 golf. Uh, and then that started my career really with, ironically, Russian, Russian warfare. That's what we learned. Uh, and then I want to say that they sprinkled on initially some of the counterinsurgency and maybe some of the counter-narcotics was part of that intel school. And so I just loved it, right? Coming um, as a Marine who had been, you know, a sniper had done some stuff in JTF6, but just that combination of infantry and jumping out of planes and everything that I had done. And then I got to focus kind of back into, I've always liked academia. And so I really loved being an intel guy, right? Like it was just so, I guess just because I was fortunate to have that hard skill, young hard skill background, and then learn to be an Intel guy. I think it's a really deadly conversation uh, or a combination, excuse me. Um, and as I was finishing School of Infantry, or not, excuse me, I was finishing Goodfellow, um, I, I kind of got hooked up. And someone came up to me and said, hey, you know, what are your plans? I'm like, i got no idea how this Army thing works. I don't know where I'm going to go. And they're like, hey, we're – there's this thing called seven special forces. Would you like to go? I'm like, okay, sounds yep. good. So it's got the word special in it so far. You know, this this looks good. I, I was going to ask you about. that
2: because I didn't know if when, you know, when you went in, if you were going in an active and, and DLI was basically your AIT and good follow the, you know, the follow on because you had an infantry background, these hard skills, I, I imagine you would have been pu- plucked out for like a sod a team. Because yep. they because they're desperate for people like you.
3: Yeah, and, and you know and it's interesting that you, you did say that because I remember and it may have been DLI or maybe in that transition of both it may have started. I remember doing and I still think I have the resume, it was horrible writing, horrible. I don't even know how I I went to seventh group. you know, God bless that they, they did take me. Uh but I, I had to put in their hey, I was in eleven Bravo and eleven, I think hotel also. Um and then I had some of these hard skills, you know, airborne. Right. So as an E4, I guess it all aligns Spanish, um, you know, uh, all the G, the scores you got to have. Um, it just aligned perfect. And then there was also that, that, that buddy hookup, right? Somebody called somewhere and say hey, you to, to branch or whatever that was. Um, uh, hey, you may want to pull this guy. So I had direct orders from there straight to group. So ended up spending two years in seventh group, which, you know, for you guys, knowing that now, now, this is not the conventional army. So um I'd never spent one day in the conventional army, good, better and different. Uh, that was literally my world is, you know, leaving the Marines coming through the, the training seventh group. And that was fast and furious. And then straight to where I ended up at.
2: So just for our viewers who might not know. So you went to a side A team, right? So, yeah. Uh, so, uh, SADs are a special operation team's alpha. Uh, they are mm-hmm. sort of the SIGINT side of special forces. They don't go through the Q course. so they're their own element. How was that for you being in group? Like, how was that being with Green Beret? How did they treat you? How was the reception?
3: I want to say that I, I, you know, and I only just cause I saw in a photo the other day. Um, I had my gold wings on right um you know, so i was <laughs> right. on my gold
2: wings right
3: i think i stood on e4 e5 and you know i may have been a little bit cocky because uh, i'm a, a, a native i was excited i was probably more gold lucky than anything right yeah. um and i, I want to say you know I, I i had a really good relationship with the the odas never really had uh, and I looked at it in retrospect as I went back in time, as I was retiring, I was looking at all the awards and the write-ups and they were all written by. And I'm like, man, I got to find this guy, Captain so-and-so and Master Sergeant so-and-so. And, you know, as I wrote, you know, posted just the other day, the dude who shot the guy who shot me, I'm like, man, I got to go thank these guys. Like I'm an asshole. Like, you know, they were really good. Now, when I was in the Sade's, it, it was an interesting time because it was pre-GY. Right. So a lot of the, I don't, think any of those guys were former anything else but Army. And so when they were in Assad A, unfortunately, what I perceived is that a lot of those guys wanted to be ODAs. They wanted to be Green Berets.
2: Right. I'm
3: like, I don't, I, you know, no disrespect to anyone, but I'm like, I, I didn't want to be a Green Beret. If not, I would have, I think, had gone down that route, but I kind of had planned uh, my future. And at that point, it I had greater ambitions, right? So I was very happy to be in, in a saad A. Um and you know I got exposed. That seventh Special Forces Group at that time had some really good connections with the IC. Mm-hmm. So we were very fortunate. We were across the street from USASOC, you know, Army Special Operations Command. So we got all the capabilities. My first mission was Panama. I learned and cut my teeth uh with one of our um a you know, the detachment sergeant uh, he taught me some ropes, you know, going in and out of the roads of, of Panama. If you guys have been there, you know, you, you go the wrong way, <laughs> Skippy, you better find your way back. And that that's how I grew up. And then the next couple of missions were integrated with Green Berets. Um, and I brought the languages, I brought my hard skills so they didn't have to worry about me necessarily shoot, move and communicate. I already knew how to do that. But I brought my, I think I brought my technical proficiency. Um, and I, and I, I was just happy to do my job. Um, so,
2: yeah. How how many people at DLI were confused and, and further on in your army career were confused by your gold wings?
3: Oh, a lot, a lot. <laughs> yeah, they were. Uh, they, they they you know. So they, it was funny because I did see someone else at some point. I remember it was somebody that had you know maybe two or three rockers, right? So it looked more like than my little three wings on on my my sergeant, and they were wearing it. They were prior service. And it was that same whole long thing. If you put a 4187 and you put it in, but anybody who's ever read an army or military regulations, there's like 50 ways to read it. Right. Right. And at the end, you're just like, it it doesn't say you can't because there's no equivalent on it. And for a while, somebody, I think, told me something. And it it wasn't the the military, the MI guys. It might have been, and just to keep a lower profile, when we started to go travel and sanitize for training, then we took it off anyway. So then, for the longest time, I just didn't even wear anything on the uniform because we were training or going forward to do, you know, the FID missions and stuff like that. But yeah, it was at the beginning; it was kind of a yeah. I was like, oh crap, I I, I shouldn't do that. And then after I left group, it, it just really didn't matter because yeah, I stopped I tell, stopped doing any of that. So That's funny.
1: <laughs> tell us about this operation uh, down on the Ecuador Colombia border where you guys ran into ELN.
3: Yeah, so that well that that was a that was interesting. And that was kind of the start of a lot of things for me. And I want to say that was my second mission in seventh, seventh group. Um, It was still your your typical FID mission flying into uh, Keto and from Keto, we were going to do this. uh, It's to the Putamayo area. So it was probably I don't know, like a 12 hour, 11 hour drive with an entire uh, company of, you know, everything that we can take to support uh, the police over there in, in that training. And so my mission, um, was to do force protection as a Sade. So I was in the, the lead vehicle with the, the commander, the sergeant major, and I think like a Commo guy. It was, it was a Commo SF guy. And then it was, you know, token me. Um, and my responsibility was, you know, essentially do the, the intel guy, do the SIGINT stuff. Um, obviously I had a, a pre brief prior to leaving of what potentially could be threat. I think it was like the 18 pox kind of working with him and and uh that's so, yeah, it was your typical it was, it was a really good mission because at that point it wasn't just flying in somewhere and then just training the guys like you had to do a movement and through you know it isn't it, it it isn't it was in Afghanistan at the time, but it's still you're in the you're at that you're at that border area and you're a bunch of gringos transporting, you know, million dollars worth of capability. So you you are a moving target. Um, and so I'm in the lead vehicle. we're going town to town to town uh, and I think I've mentioned it before like I knew my 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 trade I was pretty decent at it uh, but obviously I relied on the skills a lot of the green Berets that were there right these guys had been long long tooth guys in seventh group had traveled in and out of Latin America more than I did so they really understood so I kind of uh, I, I want to say the combo got the kamo SF guy that was next to me kind of helped me in, in that perspective bounce what I was. Interpreting from an Intel side and what he did from from just his skills and his experience, um, and so we were kind of bounce that off as we would go town by town. People stopping to take piss breaks, um, but then you know here's where uh, in that convoy a lot of the my skills now in the streets of Miami helped me. Right, like that definitely. Ha- I, I've, I've I've always listened to that little voice for, uh, for for the longest time throughout my entire career, and so two or three towns, two little, three little towns prior to where we got hit uh, where the ambush uh, that there, there was already something, um, an engagement going on. It was just desolate, right? Like you kind of see in the movies, you pull in and you're like, where the hell is everybody? Yeah, like it's not supposed to be, right? I can see that there's cell Tower, it's the oil pipeline. There's all of these, you know, Met T type stuff. You're like, okay, this, this is not right. And so you kind of give that indication. And then as you get to the next one, there's a little bit of traffic sort of on the SIGINT world. And, and, and SIGINT's pretty easy, right? It either belongs there, it doesn't belong there. You either to listen to it and you can tell. Um, I think at that point that, you know, a lot of that comms in there um, is, uh, which they will let her survive. You know, they, they can say like, hey, there's three three blue cows in the truck. Well, that's not what that means, right? This is right. just, just a nefarious talking where generally a regular, uh, you know, a person who learns Spanish may not understand that. Someone who's from the streets is going to understand you know some of that and so that's really what i was queuing on because uh, this wasn't like you know cuban you know order of battle or russian order of battle this was more thug level or whatever can happen in there and so as we get to the the last town as we're leaving and it's starting to get you know uh, get dark and it's kind of the whole thing the road goes along um to our right if you would as we were moving to the putamaya area uh there's the oil pipeline that just runs all the way across right and as we're coming around a bend and we turn left, it's kind of a huge blind spot. And as we come, come around, and then now we can see forward down the road and then the S turns, Uh, it's a little, it's it's like a bridge, a wooden bridge, and there's a bus, a school bus there. And that was like your atypical, the dudes are robbing them. They were really kidnapping uh, um, a politician that was there. And I guess they didn't know we were coming or they may have known we were coming. As I'm coming around, I, I get that that unique break of squelch right that follows um, with some some spoken language. But as we come around, I, I give an indicator, and as soon as we come around, we start getting shots fired. Uh, you know, and there was that big oh crap, like this is not supposed to be happening, um, which was you know part of that, so I'll, I'll stop there for a second.
1: Yeah, no, that's, I mean, this is a pretty big deal, too. I mean, prior to 9-11, that you have Americans on, I don't want to say clandestine, but kind of low visibility, you're not trying to make your presence known, and then you run into uh, the the enemy and start taking fire. Yeah, you take fire, I mean, you you
3: stumble across, you know, their activities, um, you know, and to go forward, originally, it was, was, uh, they were declared to be bandidos. Uh, but that was really also because of the host nation. Uh, as you know, you know, the U- Americans are coming with food money. There's lots of money. They don't want the U.S. to pull out because it wasn't assessed that there's bad guys. Right. So you're going to downplay as if you're in any of these, you know, I don't want to say third world countries. If you're in any of these other countries and you're supporting that nation and something happens, you know, they can look bad. They don't want the U.S. to pull out, you know, and then ultimately I get shot. or You know, and so that means now somebody's down, and this is going to go up the essentially go up the flagpole, right? Um, so yeah. So initially it was it was bandido Later on, as they're processing everything from the intel side, and as you know, the heroic actions from the green berets and everything that happened, and then you know uh, the MI side and this uh, user sock side is looking: Hey, do we give this guy a purple heart? Or we not give this guy a purple heart? Do we give this guy? you know, what awards are we gonna give for these actions? Because it did happen. Right. Then the information surfaced, and Yusuf was amazing. I mean, I got a lot of the general officer notes um, and, and everybody was very supportive because they're like, hey, it did happen. People did get shot at. We killed people, you know, they saved lives of guys that were about to get taken as hostages. And then they found out, yeah, hey, these are dudes that were ELN or FARC, they're training down there and they're doing this as part of money. And then it goes back to the order, you know, the information that we knew about the way that they operate. Uh, but that was a, for me personally, well, I'd imagine, and I left groups shortly after that. So I don't know what, how, you know, SF group or Ali 7th group changed in time because I was gone shortly after that.
2: I mean, that was a problem uh, that Seventh Group was having a, a lot, I think, during, like, the 80s and, and like, uh, the early 90s, right, is they weren't getting recognized. They weren't getting combat infantry badges. They weren't getting oh, Purple yeah. Hearts. They, you know, the, because the because they weren't in an official war or whatever.
1: We talked about that with Greg. Yeah. Greg That the,
2: they were being co- kind of left out, uh, you know, left out to dry.
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the threat was there. I can tell you that. Cause I, I, I would then go to Columbia, the next mission, and then we ramped up force protection. Right? Force protection was kind of one of those things like, yeah, okay. A lot of the old timers in the team were like, no, man, hey, there, there are people that are going to want to rug us. We're Americans. We bring nice, fancy stuff. Right. You're out there, and you're also training the police or the military who are going to come after them. You can see where that cycle goes. It doesn't need to be war. Right. It essentially, is a war, right? War on drugs or war right. on 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 their neighborhood. If you were like a turf war. So yeah, I remember. Uh, and again, at this point, I was young, but I learned a lot from the, you know, the uh, the team sergeants there, and you know, we were carrying the fanny packs, and we would go to the gym, and we would protect each other. Where's your gun? Where didn't you keep your gun? Because there was that threat level. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't like it is like if you would go to Afghanistan, but it was there.
1: How how did that go down though? Where uh, on that operation where you got shot and and had to be evacuated?
3: Yeah. So um, as the vehicle came around, we took I want to say maybe the first two shots. They uh, the driver went forward a little bit, and then the determination was to to pull back because there was nowhere to go forward. Right. So we needed to get some some distance between the bridge, the hard bridge, because it was dark at that point. And then I uh, I want to say they can see or acknowledge because of the, the the beams of light from the, from the vehicle. They can see the first two guys, and then there were some guys on on the uh, on the hilltop or al- along the hilltop. And so we backed up. Uh, and, and for you guys that have been in those little crappy one way roads, you know, luckily the guy who's driving no, don't go too far back because then it's a cliff down or you're going to hit the pipe. So we got enough. You know, lucky just pulled back enough. Um, that when the two, the commander and and the sergeant major opened the doors to start engaging, we were then in the back. And I think the combo guy had his radio up his was able to get to his weapon faster. I had all of this crap on me, right? Uh, lesson learned for the rest of my career, how to keep everything tidy. Uh, and so as we open up now, there's only again, it's a one way road, you know, hill, hill on the left and then a, a drop, a dark drop down, which you would potentially hit the oil pipe that was there. And so we could not we could not engage because we had the other two guys in front of us. And so my thing was to come out, I came out the back rear door was essentially, I knew to to jump over and try to get into sort of the ditch. I just didn't know how, how deep the ditch was. So as I'm untangling, getting ready to move and to jump, as I'm jumping over, you know, I get nicked in the inner thigh and it goes out the exterior uh, of my right thigh. And then just kind of come crashing down and then you know it was like oh crap right you know i feel the heatness in my leg there's a lot going on this is my first engagement in 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 combat uh and i think i've mentioned this before like it was it was interesting for me to mentally go from okay i'm gonna do my job as the the sade guy right yeah i'm gonna do some some typical be a team member but that's what these guys are here for but once I got shot, now it's kind of like okay, this is personal, yeah. right? And that adrenaline kind of kicks in, <laughs> yeah. and so that that Marine in you comes out. and He's like, okay, got it. Now, now I'm going to be part of this team, part of this 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 aspect of it. As I hit the ground, as I do that quick, you know, that quick combat lifesaver check, if you would, I'm like, all right, I'm okay. Go for my, I think it was like a nine millimeter at the, at the time. M- of make Baretta sure the boys are still I- there.
1: What's that? Make sure the boys are still there.
3: Yeah, right. Well, yeah, that's, you're just like, okay, you shot my brand new North Face pants or ARIA, right. I think they were North Face pants. I'm like, fuck, I'm still paying for those things. Uh, and then I go look up and then now this ditch is really high and I'm like, okay, this is now I'm going to have to either crawl up and then, you know, obviously you alert your team and say, Hey, I'm, I'm hit or whatever I said. Uh, and then it, it appeared within, within seconds, a minute that, that then either the medic or, maybe one of the guys that was in the back vehicle actually came, came to see me and kind of double check. And he had the comms to be able to relate back. Uh, hey, you know, he, he'd been, he'd been hit.
2: How how far, if that was your inner thigh, how far was it from your femoral artery? That's a really dangerous place to get shot. Really, really, really close. Um,
3: wow. I'm very lucky um, when I've, again, in, in, I don't think I even looked at the X rays or even cared when I got back to um Walmac. Is it Walmart? Whatever it is, is that Bragg. Bragg. I never yeah. looked yeah, Bragg. I never looked at it. Um I, only till I was retiring that now you're making the case to the VA. I got right. shot. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> how, how many percentage can I get that they they looked at all of that stuff and they're like, Hey man, you were that was really close. I was like, Yeah, yeah I never I never really went back, but I, I mean as as I feel it. It's really right. It's got to be centimeters Ugh, that it went through it. Um, I do know that the medic wanted to try to put like some rod. He's like, I've got to, you know, first combat. He's like, I got to do all these procedures for you. Right. Like, yeah. You're not doing that, dude. <laughs>
1: right. right, right. right. <laughs> and and of course you, you got a CIB out of all of this and a combat patch, uh,
3: I didn't get anything out of that. <laughs>
1: yeah,
3: I, I get, I get. Uh, yeah, they, they all got their. I mean, they're all, you know, they, they got their awards. They were, they were world Tech and it was both documented. They, they did their part. Uh, I think I left out of there, obviously my the, the first purple heart. Um, which again, lots of respect for for the professionals. I saw all the paperwork that they had to do to get that to get that filed in that time, and and forever. I took two things out of that. It is take care of your people when it comes time to a war because I saw, you know, from captains to you know E sixes all the way to three stars, pushing this paperwork forward. So I believe in the process. Sorry to kind of hijack that a little bit, but no, yeah, yeah.
2: no, no, it's it's your show, so you're not hijacking. Oh, you're good. Um, And actually, talking about a package check is a good segue. (laughs) So <laughs> a good segue to our first sponsor of the night, which is Chillboy Undies, cuz you got to keep the boys chill, right? Um check out chillboys.com. They sell great boxer briefs, uh socks, long johns. Um they make them out of bamboo cotton, which is I mean, you've been like in hot areas down in Latin America, over in the in the desert, like keeping keeping the boys chill mm-hmm. is a primary, you know, you don't want that Munda growing. So, uh, <laughs> so <clears throat> check out chillboys.com. Very comfortable box of briefs. I really like them. I, I mean, they're super. Uh, I really like their socks also. Yeah. And I'm Mabry wearing them right now. They're a great. lot lighter and it's a lot more comfortable than, than regular cotton. Um, promo code team 15 for 15% off. That's chillboys.com. Team 15 for 10 or 15% off your first purchase.
1: And then our second uh, sponsor for tonight's show is Boyke's Diltong. Dave and I eat this. I was eating this on the last show. People got mad at
2: me. Uh, Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, It's because you had your elbows on the table. Because of my lack of professionalism. Had you been refined and had something. (laughs) If I was wearing a bow tie, yeah. Um, Yeah, we love this. I mean, we we truly love this. Uh, If you're a fan of beef jerky, if you're a fan of beef snacks, you'll love biltong, and especially boyke's biltong. It's uh, better for you than beef jerky. It's tastier than beef jerky. Yeah, it's really good. And there's also
1: the there's the normal one that Dave. Oh no, that's the chili. Yeah, the chili is really hot. It's even hot for me. Um, But then there's also the normal, non-spicy, traditional. You're uh,
2: Irish. What do you mean even hot
1: for me? Dude, I love spicy food. I do. (laughs) <laughs> I grew up eating Portuguese
2: food Eric have you have you had built on before I've not but I will yeah we'll we'll send you some the boy like it is good good stuff yeah I highly recommend it so BoyKeys.com.
1: use team 10 to get 10% off your order uh, the pro that's the promo code team 10 for 10% off, off your order at boy so
0: being a parent can be really challenging Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today.
1: Back to you, Eric. Um, You obviously, thank God, survived this encounter down on the Colombian border. You said you had another uh, FID mission down to Colombia with Seventh Group. When does this idea or when do you even first hear that there's this secretive JSOC intelligence unit? Um, I mean, I think especially at that time in in the late 1990s, uh, no one even knew these guys existed, really. When did this idea or what, when did when did knowledge uh, of this unit's existence even creep in, into your awareness? And what made you make that decision to kind of take the jump over?
3: You know, there's something you just said that just jarred my memory. Uh, and I'm going to make a joke here probably to is when I got hogtied by a bunch of Rangers on an abandoned airfield on a, on a JSOC exercise. So true story. So how I actually even came to understand what JSOC was and even I didn't even know what the tiers would be. I didn't know any of that. But while while in group, I think the only thing I participated in was at the Sears school. Right. So they, need, they needed bodies. I think they I don't, uh, maybe they needed a little brown guy to play a part. I, I did go be like an extra at, at Sears school. Uh, there at Port Bragg, and so I kind of saw a world that I wasn't—I I wasn't aware of when I was a Marine, um, and, and definitely not while, while I was in MI or or a Sade or, or in group. Um, and then there's a couple of guys that came in, you know, typical, came in the little blue blazers with gold buttons, uh, and you know, my dead sergeant tells me, "Hey, man, you need to go report over here because they're doing a casting call uh, interviews for an exercise." I'm like, "Oh, okay, cool." You know, and then he's Spanish speaker, so there was something that they said that then I felt. All right, cool. I can be I can be abused, and so I went through this interview process, and they made me talk. They want to know, made me read these lines, and essentially, ironically, I then end up playing a FARC a, a commander for a uh, you know Latin American terrorist group for an exercise. <laughs> so it's so the first time I get to grow my beard. I get to you know, and as an intel guy, it was interesting because I could think go to the skip if you would and then look this up so I, I got to really rehearse rather than just being like somebody random that they got a group to play a character in one of these jrx exercises and so i then during that um the you know backside of being a target so i was essentially the number one target or the number two target for this exercise so jsoc brought everything to bear and i got to see it from that perspective right I got and I got to see it because I had my lines and then I I got to go to like the little talk where they're orchestrating and then I remember this one guy um just kind of to your story of the hippie you know in the mountains he just looked different right this guy just carried himself different long hair that blue coat it seems like he wore that everywhere right and he was just authoritative just telling anybody knew everything what he was doing and capabilities and assets and the boys. And I'm like, oh man, that guy's pretty cool. But then I get told to go off and then they're gonna capture me and have this little piece of paper on you, don't say anything and talk on the radio. And subsequently, I didn't know what a direct action hit would be or a hostage, you know, I didn't know what that would be, but I felt the fucking concussion grenades, right? And I then quickly learned backwards. Uh, I knew that they were assets because uh, I, as a, as a, as at that time, as just a shot A, there were capabilities at hand that didn't make sense to what I knew, uh-huh. right? As an, as a, as an E five, and a Sade, um, you know, with with uh, Sig gear or capabilities, um, I knew so much. But when this exercise was unfolding, I'm like, how the hell are these guys going to do that? Who the hell are these two? Do- how are they? Right. Like, I was really inquisitive of how they were going to find me. And there was things being brought to bear that I had no idea. And obviously a guy with the, the, the blue blazer wouldn't tell me. Uh, till, you know, at the dead of night, they found me. It happened to be in this one where the Rangers and all due respect, those dudes came in, they stormed in, hogtied the crap out of me. I was still with the concussion, whatever they, they threw in there and I'm hogtied. Uh and finally one guy finally found that little piece of paper. I'm like, dude, if you if you did all that to me, you better have found that you know, SSC, <laughs> right. right? You better have found that fucking thing. Other lesson learned. And so from that one, I went back and went through the debriefing. I I talked to that one guy. It was he was a sergeant major at the time. He was a sergeant major. And then all I know was to the effect of hey, guys are gonna be coming um in the months to be to show up for the uh the pitch, the recruiting pitch. And so I then went back and told somebody that was in charge of me, I was like, Hey, I'm interested to do this, um, between training and stuff like that. And I, and I went, and then it was two guys that ended up being forever uh, two of my greatest mentors, right? It, uh, it, you know, just really quick, uh, hopefully a lot of organizations when they send folks to do the recruiting, you send your best to the best, because that impression lasts forever. Uh and it was in fact it lasted forever. Uh a the guy that ran the exercise or that aspect of the exercise, I would then work for him or know who he was, and then the two guys that came for recruiting. Uh I don't remember much, but I whatever they pitched, I wanted to do it because I just remember being hog tied and, and and all of that. So that mystique, again, I knew there was no videos, there was nothing. Um and then I applied. Um and they would basically said, Here's a card we'll call you, don't contact us. And then that's it. And then I I went and that's when I got shot and came back and I was like, oh crap, I know I got to go through some selection process. And then at that point I had heard bits and pieces but there was nothing being talked about at group, nothing. Um, I want to say that there was one guy that was a former guy that, hey, came back. There were some incidents, uh, unfortunately uh, fatal uh, that I didn't know that this guy did come from somewhere, but he was pretty dinged up mentally. And, and I filed that later on, which is what, what I do now for a lot of the vet and suicide. Um, after I got shot, came back, uh, and then I knew I just needed to train, and then did, did end up getting that magical phone call. Hey, here's some information, show up, and you're gonna go through your selection process.
1: What can you tell us about the selection process? Because uh, I've had some conversations with people who actually actually said they had a good time at the selection course and thought it was a, a very challenging experience where they were kind of asked to think outside the box.
3: Yeah, I, I, for simplicity, that, that is, you know, and I'll, uh, Eric will just speak on his personal, which is going to probably quantify a lot of that. Um, I went every time I went through something, I knew more and more that that's where I wanted to be. Again, I never saw it in the Marine Corps. I never saw it at group. I didn't even read about it in a book, right? I, during, during that time, I did not maybe I could have correlated it to a movie or something. It was every time something was done, I was just enameled by it. I was enameled by the, the preciseness, the timeliness, the exactness, the no feedback, right? The no feedback aspect of it. I don't know, might've been something from my childhood is just the way it was, right? Like, it, and so it just, it, it, it was hard it was physically it was physically hard mentally hard i think it was the, the good piece um very individual aspects of it which i enjoyed um and then there was always that mystique right you know you start with so many and then one day <laughs> so many are gone and then you keep on going down. and you're and what that told you is if you're going through all of this you want to be part of an organization that has high standards right and so i remembered that and, and all and and it's just the way things ran, the littleness—I was just—I was just, I was just um, attracted to that compartmentalization, to that mind challenging, to that you're not going to figure it out, right? It, like you, there, nobody, nobody talked about it. Nobody knew. And the people that said some stuff, I remember in my class, you're just like, okay, you need to get chapped out of the army because you're just talking wacky shit, right? Like we're not here looking for aliens, like. <laughs> Um <laughs> uh, so so it uh it, it forever um i was you know obviously uh, really proud to have been selected but many times in my career and i think we we talked about this earlier as we transitioned uh, into gwat and then as certain organizations uh changed in time i would always re- revert back to selection as the core of why they select people Uh, And that, in essence, is um, your selection is an indicator of what you may have to do in the the possibility, because in those selections, you're going to be tested across the spectrum. And that spectrum is tied back to, obviously, an organization's requirements for the people that they need to do certain missions.
1: What do you think that core is that they're selecting for? Like, well, I guess, I, I guess I'm kind of asking that question of, like, what is the quintessential operator, which I know is kind of a, a broad and maybe unfair question in some ways. But what do you think that, that uh, those qualities are?
3: Uh, you know, the ability for uh, uh, ambiguity, mm. right? The ability, and it's been said it many times, to live and think in the gray is very difficult. That ability, again, I, you know, I'll do respect to everyone, uh, but every Marine, every Rifleman, every SEAL, every other operator, every you, you may not have the mindset to take off and do what is needed, right? There and, and Dave, you can relate to it, which is that, you know, at the in the IC world in the tradecraft world is, hey, come back and fight another day. Right. And they always, depending your you know, the, the old instructors from the old Cold War will tell you, you know, don't be that ranger who has to take that hill. Mm-hmm. You right. might have to make that determination. You evaluated and you said, I will come back tomorrow. And a lot of, by DNA, if you would, you know, the infantry people, the, or the more of the special operations, drag or knuckle, you know, uh, uh, drag knuckles, knuckle draggers, um, are going to want to use that adrenaline. And so the type of people you need is that person who's able to think emotional intelligence, right, It is critical. Mm-hmm. That ability to go, nope uh that compartmentalization intelligence you know, to be smart to th- uh, thinking out of the box yes you know that th- those things those are those are key um and then there's things you're just not going to be comfortable right that a lot of people are going to be like hey i didn't join the military for that but well, right. that's great thank you for your you know we saw that a lot thank you for your patriotism Continue. you're going to leave here and you're going to do great things right. but this may not be for you and sure. because this world we're actually not going to tell you about it. And so right. there aren't very many people that are going to go do something not being told because you knew when you guys went to Ranger School yeah, what yeah, Ranger School yeah. was about. You knew about SF. You knew about probably the agency might be a little bit different, but everything in the military, but this world, no, because that's the type of world you're going to operate in. Right. right? And, and so singleton, two, three, four, ambiguity. So that ability really, it's simple to operate and, and be trusted. And so there's a integrity is huge. Yeah. Your word, your word is it. Yeah. And, and then, so your analytical process to process the information, not only as, a, as an individual because you work in team and you, you're, you're able to talk to each other and then an analyst is gonna take it, but it all starts with that trust. Did that guy really go do, did he, did he self-assess? How many people really know to self-assess? Right. Hey man, I'm hurt. Yeah, it was one thing to muscle through a long walk than to go, I may need to stop. It's okay for me to stop because the mission I got to do tomorrow is going to take me 18 more hours to do, and then I don't know what's going to happen, so I need to have some reserves, right? So that hopefully that answers mm-hmm. the mindset of it, and then and then the last one, and if I would is, I mean you you, you got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you've seen some of the pictures, and there's there's I mean I'm the I'm not the only one that's done this, right? This can relate to guys doing other. Sort of intel, intel work which uh, requires more of that mindset. Uh, but is hey, you don't know what you're going to need to be tomorrow, and and that can be, in a variety of ways, which I think you'll probably cover on later on. But it yeah. starts there.
2: Uh, and I, you know, it's interesting because one of the things you said is is you know the ability to do what it takes, and I think a lot of people think. When they think of that, they think of like from a shooter perspective to kill a bad guy right. or to, you know, take the shot. But sometimes it more like in a DEA scenario, it's like not taking down yep. the bad guy, knowing they're doing harm, but waiting to collect on the bigger picture. Like that yep. type of thing is hard for people to walk away from. You know, it's like it,
1: tactical patience. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It, it's, um, so sometimes doing what it takes isn't isn't like the 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 gung-ho, yeah, I'm gonna sue a or you know just charge in here and, and blast this person. I'm okay with killing bad guys. Leroy Jenkins. It, it's living, yeah, 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 exactly. It's living in a in a much more um you know kind of obscure world of I know this person is actively hurting people, but it's not my job at this point to stop them from hurting these people because there's a larger picture that that's being taken in.
3: Yeah. You, you guys both said something. And, and, and again, you're, and and now I'm fortunate that post-processing and when I went to uh, NICO, the National Intrepid Center of Excellence for traumatic brain injuries, it's generally here at um, in Walter Reed area, we get a lot of uh, special operators that, that come that are, you know, 15, 20 years into career. And these guys are, Burnt out. And, and the, the command sent them to this one month program. And so, one of the key things uh, about NICO and traumatic brain injuries and PTS, if you would, is based on triggers, right? And so, when we did this exercise really quick on triggers, I was, it's going kind to of, kind of almost be like a joke. Like, I was there with the SEAL, I was there with the, uh, a a guy from Fort Bragg, and I think there was another SF guy, and then it was me. And interestingly, and and, and the SEAL came from a from the, the higher tier level. Um, and their triggers in, in the mentality, again, nothing, nothing wrong with any of them, but it's just that, that, uh, by default, by default, they're going to, their triggers are different than our triggers. Our triggers are very suppressed. Uh You know, if you bump into me, I am just going to go away. If you hit my car downtown, you know, the streets of Patientville, Haiti, I'm just going to keep on because the mission is more important. Uh You have to be able to control that adrenaline. And yes, I can pull out my gun and I can shoot them. And yes, I can pull out my knife. We can do all of that. But it is that emotional ability in in, in those triggers. So when we did this exercise, all my triggers were different than mm-hmm. theirs. That's interesting. Because my requirement was to be, for us to be gray. And gray is not, you know, that only cloak and dagger, but it's those emotions, right? Right. Like you're, I'm not going to, if you, you know, as you know, this from a fist perspective, foreign intelligence service, Someone is going to probe you. Well, a lot of these Marines, you know, these wound up guys, are they're going to they're going to you're going to fail that test. You're going right. to show right. that you're an aggressor, where you have to be able to be able to control that. You just go, okay, I got something else that I got to protect.
1: So, Eric, you did get selected, of course. And I was wondering if we could take a moment here, because I know you're a bit of a, a student of the, the history behind it. If you could tell us a little bit about the unit history now that, you know, you're getting read onto the mission and onto the unit. And I know there's plenty of things you're not able to speak about. But are you able to talk to us a little bit about the, the unit history, why it came about, why it exists, how it developed over time?
3: Um, yeah, I'll do my best to navigate. Uh, and, and so obviously there was a, a, a unique requirement a long time ago when a lot of these other, um, organizations came, right? And so there's a, from my background, and just to, to keep it simple, obviously, you know, you know, special operations and intelligence and the importance of intelligence at, at a tactical operation and strategic requirement, and, and a particular strategic, right? That very hard on the ground intelligence with certainty, uh, you know, to be enablers for people who have another job, right, mm-hmm. another another tier organization who has something to do. And, and so that's a that's a kind of an origin story of the requirement, right, for unique special operations intelligence that keeps it simple. Um, and then the history, so I always found history in, in that regards, A, as a childhood growing up because of my stepdad and sort of uh, the Cuban background and, and what, um, why pay a big, you know, the, the, the Bay of Pigs. I didn't understand it in high school, but I did ironically when I went to Goodfellow Thank to you. be a in military intelligence, that was something that I learned. I learned the insides and out from the intel of the Bay of Pigs and, and the requirement for intelligence. And so when I when I start getting to the unit, you know, these things start to kind of combine. Kind of my, my life at being at, at, at seventh group, which is special operations, and then being an Intel guy, and then some of the things from my childhood. Uh, with my stepfather at that kind of Bay of Pig world. And so getting into the unit, and um, I was a young guy. So, as in any of these organizations, they skip skipping go to the corner and draw, right? right. Like you got to earn your keep, right? Like it's, and so you know that because that's kind of part of selection, that's part of the course. And so when you, when you step in the first day, you know your place, right? Uh, and then they're bringing you in w- w- open arms. But then you just, there's just so many things going on. And things that you won't you won't be exposed to in training, uh, obviously, because if you're not selected, then, then just like anything, should be compartmentalized. And then when you get in there, and depending where you go, and you do kind of like the uh, a, a unit history, they're very good at 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 uh, at a um, corporate level, if you would, at an organization, uh, sharing its history where we come from. So now you understand because you're inside, excuse me, you're inside the fold, right? So you get some of that, and then. I happen to be that the teams that I went into were full of history, full of the guys that did stuff some of the the, the you know the the ninjas as we call them these are the skills wise and so when I think I mentioned it to you when when you're sitting in there and you're having some of your briefings or you're 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 getting in there or you're having some of your team talk right at the team room and you're, you're having a drink these stories come on and you're like you fucking kidding me like we did that you did that and everybody's just humble yeah we did this and we did that and we were part of this you know a lot of it wasn't the hey my you know my 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 sock is bigger than yours it is hey man start learning because you got to get into those shoes quick and you've got to be able to understand the spectrum because they don't teach you this in schoolhouse you got to be ready for the spectrum of what the the possible is And so yeah you're seeing you know and i think that time we didn't have we didn't have computers so I remember part of my day was come in, work out, go do combatives, go do some technical stuff. And then, as if I was getting ready to go, I'd have to read on paper the daily sit reps. And so, you're reading these sit reps, and it's got to be like reading a you know a Jack Carr book. You're just like, Are you serious? Like, these dudes are out there. Like, and you didn't even meet these guys, and you're like, Oh my God. And then you read the other folder of some, you know, there's 10 things going on in the world. And then all of a sudden, there's this drawer of all of the other stuff. So I got to read them, right? And then there was a lot of history. So I learned early on of, of people. I mean, we, we would celebrate what individuals did because they became myths and it was okay. It's kind of, I think I mentioned it once, it's kind of like being like a, the Indians who sit around the campfire and talk about how they slayed, I don't know, whatever and how they did something. And then that instilled in me, I, I don't think the 20 years I was there, I, I learned all the history. I was fortunate. Uh, a lot of the the gray beards brought me in and 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 talked to me about these stories, and there was kind of a passing on of the history, um, which is an honor to be sort of bestowed just this this information. Which unfortunately it got it's got to stay in your head right. uh, till you talk to talk to others. But
2: um, how, yeah, that's that was my go ahead. I, I was just wondering how was that for you from going from the Marine Corps, which is very focused on esprit de corps very focused on history i mean you get history classes during boot camp you know um uh and then going someplace where the history is so fragmented and threaded that you really have to track it down on your own if you want to know it
3: yeah that's a good point i I don't uh that, that kind of probably you know Answers, answers some folks' questions like, hey, why, why does it seem that you're so much more passionate uh, about being a Marine, right? That whole once a Marine, always a Marine. Uh, but that's why I started. And, and that's how, when I left the streets of Hialeah and I went into the Marine Corps, I got indoctrinated into right. the Marine Corps history. And so in and out was Marine Corps history forever. And then my time in the Army in the, in, the, in the seventh group was too quick, right? It was fast and furious. I was in and I was out. And then when I came to the unit, it was all based about history. Right. Uh, because of its origins it's about there's also this piece of hey buddy this is for real right your actions home forward back left and between what you say who you marry who you talk to what you purchase what you wear affects the organization right and so that ties back into the history and into the why and it and in in, in simple places in, into the level of of what you're operating at, and it sinks in sometimes. It really does sink in, right? When you start going up the ranks, I think by the time guys are at E89s, you know, you start understanding more of the inner workings of money, of um, of uh, charter. You start understanding uh, authorities, right. and once you look at these authorities, you're looking across, right? And and I always studied also uh, intelligence. Um, as the intelligence community. So I knew, oh, wow, okay, this organization, not only in the hallways, but in documents, like you're for real, right? You're giving a lot of money, you have a lot of uh, your requirements are, are at that level. Uh, and then I experienced it, you know, and I will get into it where I did the typical tactical mission, you know, running around the, the mountains of Afghanistan to a strategic mission, which is there's serial chance, you know, there's, hey, there's no wiggle room for compromise which is different than being shot in the leg or getting hit by an RPG. Compromise, in essence, is really not an option. So history was important to understand.
1: When you say the the spectrum of the possible, I mean, it sounds like a lot of the guys at the unit had really everything thrown at them uh, as far as mission profiles, types of missions. You mentioned the title authorities. Um, in, in one sense, it sounds like the dream job that you can kind of do whatever it is you need to do. I, that's maybe the wrong term to, to use, but I mean, you have different means to accomplish your missions and, and probably you guys have uh, uh, wider left and right limits to do that than probably some of the other units. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the difficulties or, or maybe not of straddling that world between special operations and the intelligence community and sort of existing in that, in that gray area.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so by definition, if you would, there isn't, and, and maybe it's, it's changed since I've been out, I always referenced, you know, hey, I got out two years ago and the world could have changed since then. Um, nor do you see a lot of special operations, uh, as we relate it to, you know, uh, and we talked about this earlier, you know, the, the direct action, Halo, scuba seals, you know, uh, what was the old term? I fixed finish, or whatever, uh fine fix finish world to this um which has always been more on sort of the agency side go collect intelligence espionage right um worlds and then when you when you get to put that potentially on, on, on one plate um to something you said earlier it is is very unique right to to be able to um and, and i want to probably go back because I got a little bit lost here. On, on, the, on the mentality side of it, um, I was fortunate just to, for, from a groundwork. When I first got there, I did the atypical um uh, mission that was going on. So that was good for me and my peer group when, when we came in, um I got to go into that real mission. Um and that was you know everything that I trained for, everything that we had done, every preparation, we were doing it. Uh, even to have you know the the subsequent risk levels that came with it and and exiting exiting out, so I had that under my belt and then and then the global war on terrorism kicked, and then we you know everybody's going off and doing afghanistan a f o work you're going out looking on the mountains, you're doing all of this type of work um but when you got back, um you may or may not go back on that rotation. you may have skills that you've developed, you may have certain characteristics, languages, technical. Uh, other hard skills that you may have, uh, or plain and simple, what happens in our world is you're by name. Hey, I want, I want, you know, Joe or Dan to come on this mission, um, because of whatever reason. And so then you're going off and, and you're doing that. And so for me, 20 years later, and you're probably going to, you know, pull pull the strings on a little bit, that was a lot of jumping around. I and mean, that literally is a lot of jumping around between all of those different skill sets, the things that you had to go learn to do, and then all of the, Crap that I call Pandora's box, that it's part of it, which you have to put away because you're not bringing that stuff home to mama, because mama and the family really don't know what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna rely on like some cliches and some Hollywood to to try to um, I hope paint this picture, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree. But I, I, it sounds like people like you were bouncing very much between like being a character in um, let's say like American Sniper or one of those types of films, uh, and then jumping into the next mission, which is more like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And you're having a kind of like jump in between these two very different worlds. And and I can only imagine (laughs) the amount of stress that that puts you under.
3: Yeah, um, you know, the neat thing is uh, the sanity part is we had really good mentors, right? And Mm -hmm. so I hope (laughs) that I was a good mentor. Uh, I think I was, you know, um, and so I had really good mentors that guide you, right? And so when you step in for you guys, you, you step into a team room and that team room functions such a certain way then it becomes, becomes normal. And so that, that became quick, quickly became normal. Uh, and in particular, after the global war on terrorism, organizations still struggle. We're like, oh my God, this is not what we're supposed to be doing. You know, that typical stuff. Uh, but after a while, the, the, these units are resilient and, and they adapt. And then, you know, I think we mentioned it before. You have NCOs. NCOs are the the, the backbone of a lot of these uh, special operations units. And the NCO that that gray beard is going to go. Nope, got it. Suck it up. This is what you're going to go do. Go put your you know go put your dry suit back in your cage. Go get your suit. Uh, go freshen up. Uh, you know, literally go freshen up your language go do this tradecraft, go get your shots, um, and study up on the mission and get out completely to the different side of the hemisphere. Oh, and by the way, the protocol for this one is, you know, tell mama you're, you're not going to talk to her for three months, right? And then, by wow. the way, Skippy, have your shit in order and don't fuck up. No pressure. was, Well, the pressure really was like you can go do really good, but if you fuck up on the day you came back, like that's it you fucked up that day and you're just like that's not fair but uh you know there's unique cultural things um yeah hopefully that answers
1: i i'd like to get into um well of course 9-11 happens the war on terror kicks off it changes the unit you're in changes a lot of these units and how how they operate um i'd like to kind of get into that and, and and start getting into um you know, some of the, your time getting deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq. And um, do you want to lead us into that before we kind of, I, I'd like to ask you about Ramadi. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, yeah. It took me a little bit to Ramadi. So the first one I, I did was, again, as I mentioned, that, that typical mission um, was a good mission, came back. Yeah. I think that one, you know, same thing, long hair, beard. Um, and shortly after that one is when I met, I met my wife. So my, my poor wife and it is a, you know, get a, Bringing the family because without my family, I don't, I don't know if I would have been able to do this uh, this long. Especially my, my spouse, my my current spouse, uh, of nineteen years, and so that's when she met me. She was a foreigner. Met her on the streets of D.C. and Dave, you can relate to it. Like, hey, crap, this is a foreigner. I'm in a <laughs> you know <in> a special <laughs> unit, right? Like, oh God, this is just why couldn't you just meet an American? Right? <laughs> so much easier to date and. You know, and I'm like, all right, you know, love at first sight, I fall in love. And then, you know, and so she was a foreigner, didn't really know anything about the military. Uh, she was from Brazil, came into the US, uh, probably been in the US not even a year. Her parents had been here for a while. That's so where she met me, um, and then I was off to do training at Fort Bragg or something like that. Um, and then went into GWAT. The first thing I did for GWAT, uh, I was fortunate. Again, my mentors, uh, one that is now one of my lifelong mentors and, and good friends, uh, is a lot about uh, um, selecting by names. Uh, they select like me to go, we set up like essentially like an AFL cell um, overseas somewhere, I think we were like uh, Dubai or Qatar, one of these places, right, where the task forces were setting up uh, points points and so we was an officer senior guy and then i went in there and so from there that was me then i think i posted somewhere i went to like five different countries i went from an embassy to transporting money to transporting prisoners on on helicopters that the task force had just got in to landing in these dusty afos somewhere to meet my buddies and hand them crap that we bought them at rei right and so that was my like holy crap I came from, you know, somewhere, you know, um, completely different focus to the, I finally got into the global war on terrorism. I got into the global war on terrorism probably like a year, year later, um, because we sent all our guys out. And, and as Jeremy and some of the guys that, that you had out in there, they got burned out, right? Like they, they were doing stuff that they weren't designed to do. And those guys have uh, that, that, you know, the those elements, those other SMUs, have the ass behind them to do that, and they were right. tiring out. So we were right in smaller this, numbers. This unit you
2: know, was never created to like produce at at that kind of tactical level in in support of of so many ongoing tactical operations.
3: Now, you know, I I, I want to say, and again, and this is only me putting my my CDD to major hat. You know, nineteen years later, it's because of our creativity, right? And it, it is because of our problem- solving abilities from the lowest you know e5 operator at, uh, you know at where, where Jeremy came from to wherever I came from it. and and then just the, the the missions that these units have uh, if people present the problem and a solution you're gonna get the resources and so anyway um, that was the first thing I did the, the, that mission which again took me onto the ground I went and grabbed prisoners. But it was that atypical, I think we talked about it, Jack, is like uh, you know, a commander's looking at you going, Hey, we need one of you guys, it's either from your element or a Delta op you know, or another operator. We got this sensitive thing, go pick up this prisoner or go take this gear or go take this money. And right. So, and so you're doing stuff. You are that trusted entity that can take care of whatever. And so when and we traveled,
2: go ahead. I was just gonna say the problem I mean the problem with your ability to be flexible and to get it done, and not just yours, but The unit in general is that that just generates more work, right? Having a can-do attitude, right, right,
3: right. Well, Um, it it became that we're like, well, I'm I'm glad they think we can do it. Okay, how the hell are we going to do it? Right, (laughs) like I live my life, and a lot of the guys that were my bosses were like, all right, buddy, we're going to go to the whiteboard. So we would go to the whiteboard with markers and figure out how to do this. Um, So anyway, so I did I did that, and then. Um my my real first time into sort of the the um the hard skill side of it was doing um I joined the, the SEALs in Kabul uh for a PSD type AFO work. So um that was just being another enabler in sort of that joint world, right? And I think that's key for folks to understand um that in the joint world. Uh, you know, one element's in charge, but there are other many people that make that capability, right? Uh, everybody's got a, a key job, regardless of what you were, especially at these levels. Uh, but someone always has the primary responsibility. So I was I was embedded um, uh, for about a month in, in Kabul, uh, which was good. However, then I get that magical phone call, as we always do, because uh, we pack everything we can pop- possibly pack for contingencies. Right. Like, okay, you're going to go into the mountains of Asadabad. And now you're going to go do AFO work, and you're going to replace your buddy over there because he has to come home because he's going to have his first child. Which, by the way, then we end up knowing, you know, our friends' children <laughs>
2: right.
3: So like they leave off to high school. So anyway, so I'm going to go replace this guy, and probably, you know, the guy you met in the mountains might have been there before. <laughs> uh, so I'm now dumped in, you know, whatever Asadaba was at Joint Base with the Rangers, OGA, SF Group, and our guys. And doing stuff along the border, and, and that was literally, um, you know, operator slash human technical, right? For for the Intel Special Operations world, it's not really an int. You're just a person who can get stuff done. And right. I think that's very key to articulate the difference that folks want to go. Well, you're a keyboard monkey. That's all you do. Well, no, we're, we we get things done. It's just you. You they're you know, like an, an ODA team, you may have a specific. Right. Skill, but at the end, you're still a green beret, or you're still a seal, or you're still right.
2: You're so the problem. Hopefully, lover. that answer
3: is a, yeah, a, yeah, a problem. Essentially, a, a problem. So, so that, that took me to like two thousand two, three. But let me know how you want to. Yeah, Eric,
2: real quick, just for the people who uh, you know listen and and may not be following along that well, can you tell us what AFO means and then what you do when you're AFO? Because you know, you, like you said, that your first job was, uh, you know, was outside of theater, was outside of the, the combat area. But yeah. then you went into yeah. the combat theater and did PSD uh, and AFO. So can you tell us about AFO?
3: Yeah, so like advanced force operations in, in Essen, it's in the beginning of, at least for and in this particular case, right? There was other elements that you know, have written books or guys have written books in, in how they were down in the mountains doing advanced force operations. But there's also this... Uh, administrative side that has to get done, right? Like special operations doesn't have bases all over the place. We're a very, very small little tick in the beginning that we have to find land, we have to find resources, we have to do um, administrative stuff. And and in some instances be able to get into the fight beyond what we were tasked for. So that aspect of it from a liaison perspective was going, setting up uh, from an advanced force was we were helping uh, all kinds of stuff from vehicles to how to bring planes, how to get houses, how to get weapons in, how to get, you know, all, all of that aspect of it, which when you're, you know, it doesn't matter how special you are when you're going to someone's base, you it's at the, that's a relationship. Like, right. Hey man, I'm going to have to go, you know, I need those barracks. Right. And here's all I can tell you. Right. And so that's a lot of legwork to facilitate people coming in and or The other one is providing options. So we have to sometimes provide multiple options. So it's just not like you went to go do one thing. Sometimes we're doing that thing one, two times, and three times because option number one and number two went to shit, and now you got to go do number three. And that's really what you're running around with the flexibility to just jump on a C-130 and fly and go to this country and then go to that other country, right? And that's at the admin in the non-combat area. And then in the combat area, it is just these enabling all of these other activities that the regular conventional mechanism can't do fast enough mm-hmm. right like hey these guys went in there they took got this hit but those prisoners need to quickly go from this little shitty not even a fob to this interrogation because now they're doing it at this new place because someone set up a capability but they you can only go you know entrusted that's a lot of that work and then the the typical stuff is then you're out operating out of FOB X, and you know this entity is uh, assigned to do special reconnaissance, is assigned to do AFO work up in the mountains, looking right. That's different than doing more of the major combat operations. You're doing three, five, you know, small elements with other IC partners with other indigenous at that level, um, and 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 just really quick. I mean. A lot of that was really possible because we were able to thank god there was a lot of you know really cool you know the rangers and the marines and national guard that helped us accomplish a lot of the work because when you're doing a lot of the sailboat work you're not taking a full package like right. you're taking whatever you can put in trucks and then when you get there as many of you are the guests say you're like oh i guess these trucks aren't going to work crap all right can you buy those jingo trucks all right we're going to buy these jingo trucks no authorities need it right give or take now we're buying these jingo trucks and now you're you're
2: continuing forward. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, uh you know, I think that it's interesting that, you know, when, when we watch movies, you know, somebody, a team shows up and, you know, there are all these weapons waiting for them, or there's a yeah. safe house waiting for them. And people don't understand that doesn't just happen. Yeah. Like, like the U S military and the CIA and, and these other organizations don't have hit teams staged everywhere and safe houses <laughs> staged everywhere. and, You know, all these things. And and that kind of
1: gets left out of the books and the movies because, like, are you going to make a movie about logistics?
2: Right. But but the thing is, is the logistics can be very, very spicy. Like you say, when it's just you and three other guys or two other guys and five Indige in the, you know, out, out, you know, out in the the mountains outside of, you know, Orgoon or whatever, uh, you know, and 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 it's like, okay, well, you know. How do we get trucks to navigate these? I just can't go to the local Toyota dealership and buy a bunch yep. of Hiluxes. And, and that, that
1: operation, yep. uh, like a lot of people don't understand, including, you know, the operators, dare I say, Rangers, like SEALs, et cetera, don't understand that, like, yeah, you went on this operation, did kick some ass, got HVT number one, but there is like a whole cluster of enablers around that shit that made that operation actually happen. I mean, we, we were just kind of like the guys that kicked in the door the last 30 seconds of it.
3: Yeah, you got, I mean, you guys bring us some point. It's something you had said. I mean, we, uh, and it was somebody that, that you knew, Dave, that we know in common. Um, and so that peer group was out forward, right? And so one of the things that we were doing uh, back at home station was monitoring because they were out first with, who you know, organically with the guys that they went out to go do, like you, you've had the guy uh, on your show before, and those dudes were, you know, the point that I'm going to get, they were freezing their ass off yeah. because we didn't have that gear, right. right? We had gear for those guys had their gear for their specific missions and yeah, they were able to get up. I think they were tra- doing a training mission somewhere, take that package and get to Afghanistan. But there's that terrain was different. There's a lot of unknowns. And so when they're getting ready to do, they're buying a lot of crap on the economy but they had that reach back power. Right. And so they had, that's the uniqueness that these organizations do have is you're picking up the phone and you're sending an email and it gets prioritized, but that takes time to buy this stuff and then get it in. And, and if, you know, and nobody really is going to wear gear that you haven't trained with, because that's pretty dangerous, right. To, to just take, especially some of the more critical kind of capabilities, but we had guys that, you know, took certain gear that we had on the shuffle, we had a pretty wide range of gear from across all the other SMUs or, or, or entities. We would get similar their capabilities and then we would have ours so we can be interoperable, uh, for lack of better words. But then those guys are like, dude, I didn't think I was going to go from here to 10,000 feet and I'm fucking freezing my ass off because... So we would literally, you know, and you hear maybe sometimes these things in movies or books, guys are going to REI, Hudson Trail, and we're buying, and we don't know, we're going to, you know, this 18-year-old, we're like, hey, man, if you had all the money in the world, what would you buy for your buddy who's stuck in the mountains of a really high mountain freezing his right. ass off? It right. needs to be really light because he's carrying a lot of vital stuff. And they're like, well, you know, not, here's this arcteric $800 jacket, right? And people are like, well... You guys are overspending. with that's the only thing that was available in two thousand one, right. and so we quickly had to get that gear because that's time. Right. That's time that those guys on the ground are like, "Hey, man, I know how much, you know, how far I can hump, how much gear I can take. I know how cold I can be, but after a while, you're just going to be. I don't care how badass you are. Those mountains of Afghanistan in that time will eat you up. Yeah, right. Your boots. That's why quickly on soft went and ditched whatever boots we had and we were buying, you know, whatever high speed boots were available, but these elements were able to get that done to, to your point, that was critical to be able to get this gear and and this stuff to these guys hands.
2: I was thinking that those, uh, REI co-op rebates on those big purchases (laughs) must've been nice for the guy going and making the purchases. (laughs) Yeah. The government impact card. Uh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but if it's on his account, it doesn't matter what credit card he's using. Uh,
1: so let's, ju- let's jump then over to Iraq and Ramadi. I, 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 yeah. I think the, you talk, we were talking a little bit about this mission um, before we started the episode, before we started streaming here tonight. I, I think it's really interesting some of, the, some of the details on how you accomplished what the job you were assigned to do out there. Can you, can you kind yeah. of walk us through that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that was when I got there. It was probably November of two thousand six, and so my my uh, a good friend of mine uh, was taking lead on on that requirement. He had been uh, hand selected to to lead uh, certain aspects of it, um, and so that target set um, had been in the works for about a year prior. So from about two thousand five, it was uh, essentially one of the number one target sets. That you know the top ten that we were looking for, and I mean that the greater, um, you know, enterprise was was looking for uh, in Iraq, and so they had gotten closer. They were narrowing down. I mean, this was going after you know a very elusive, so uh, one off from you know a senior um, Al Qaeda. Um, you're you're trying to get to them by their communications, their facilitators. Um, key folks. And so this person happened to have an extreme amount of level of tradecraft training, um, and just what they were doing was very, very key. It, it had a lot of the agencies allude to how, um, they were essentially communicating, um, and then the way that they were doing things. It, it just, I mean, again, we, we can throw everything at it. We just couldn't figure out, um, to the simple terms where the hell this person was and who they were, right? And so by the time I got there, I had been hand chosen. I was operating somewhere else, came back. Uh, I think my kid was like a year old. Uh, and then I'm back out the door, I, I go to replace, and then I'll, I'm taking on this other capability. And so we end up working for the task force uh, commander um, as a unique capability for him, right? He's got his elements of, of at that point was the SEALs there. That, that team is there, they're doing their work um and it was a joint effort and so essentially my task was uh to lead some uh, efforts leveraging um ic capabilities and, you know intelligence community capabilities and just kind of pulling together how to get to this entity and so we had done several you know operating into ramadi as you guys know in uh, november of 2006 was extremely dangerous i think there was a, a huge um, a flurry of of activity going on in the in the summer of 2006. I, mean, I think there's like movies and books written about it. Um, but by the time I got there, I knew that it was a hostile environment. And so, I had ran uh, a couple of operations going in, essentially from the task force in and out of her body, looking for my whole mission was just find this individual, and then give the task force commander and the um, overarching, you know, special operations commander on the ground options, right? That's what—that's essentially what we do is, is provide those options. And um, the one really big mission was there was going to be um, a cordon sweep by the Marines and sort of the Army going from, one, you know, one side of Ramadi all the way across. Uh, and we provided to the task force commander, we're like, hey, we, we believe this entity, um, which has a very unique high level of tradecraft, like this enemy is employing high levels of tradecraft, and you, it's just you're just not going to, you know, uh, send rangers in there and find them. It's just not going to work that way. Eric, if I um, can interrupt
1: for a yeah. moment, I mean, tradecraft implies uh, training, uh, professional intelligence service training. Uh, was there yep. any indication or or any? Yep um idea of where the bad guys picked this up from
3: there, there is uh and I'm, I'm probably gonna refrain a little bit but it, it's definitely at the at the state-sponsored level
1: holy shit like okay. it was
3: good it, it was good it, <laughs> and, and and it was stuff that i'll preface it i ended up having to go into the interrogation room with the gators at that point because of the dynamics and the relationship, ultimately, I'll get to this point, Uh, but when they started to peel the onion, it was just like, oh, crap. Okay, that this is at another layer, which made sense, but when you're starting to see technical, you know, and and, uh, it's kind of shit you see in movies, but this person wasn't who they were.
1: Yeah. So we're up, you're you're up against a a state-sponsored terrorist organization. You're
3: state-sponsored. This is state-sponsored running around in in the open, you know, in the open, in Ramadi, amongst the other crap that's going on, right? So you've got the regular task force going across, you know, and that includes the Brits and everybody else going against high-level targets. And you've got the Marines or the regular SEAL, you know, everybody else. uh, But then you have this other little spots that were state-sponsored. There's always another layer of stuff going on all the time. Mm -hmm. It's just if that's your responsibility, you're aware (laughs) <laughs> that in the other building, there's something at the strategic level where you're looking at it at the tactical level. Right. right. And again, and this, this has been go-
1: on the other side yeah. of that, that onion and that other little spot, you are the adversary that, that pops onto that battle space to find that one guy.
3: Yeah. And, and you know, it, I, I it's like, we talked about this earlier. The harder part is navigating the political piece. Right. Right. Like it's somebody else's space. Right. So people think it's like, Oh, the Marines just went in there or the seals went in there and they, tore down this door and got the bad guy. Before that even happened, there are layers of, for good reason, sometimes that that house, that building can't be taken down. Right. Because there are other things at play. Right. So that ability to also understand, hey, wait a minute, what is actually also going on here, a block away, two blocks away. Right. So um, we got the approvals. You know, I presented the op- the, uh, uh, the option to be embedded. Um, there was a code on sweep that was going to happen. So that means then when these things happen, the populace knows that the Marines and the military are going to come through. So they're going to hunker down, right? And activities are going to go down and we're going to do all of this PR kind of stuff. So quickly grabbed my kit, flew over, um, embedded a, I want to say they're the second ID their scout platoon, right? Because um, then it, this is the colonel that was in charge of them knew somebody from the task force, which again, it's usually who you know, uh, these friendships that go a long way that help facilitate these operations. So, you know, I got my my little rhetoric ruck full of kit, my guns and stuff and my uniforms. Um, and actually on that one, that's the one that I took, uh, two uniforms, I took an army uniform and a Marine uniform, um, understanding you know possible courses of actions, what some um, you know lines of operations could be. So I flew over there. Um, at that point, only the colonel knew, and then he brought on the the senior staff sergeant. that was in charge of the scout team, so essentially, I in, I became uh, one of their team members. So we went in in the, in the darkness, just like the scout team would do, providing overwatch for the greater cordon blue, which gave me then the opportunity to sneak and peek in and out of the houses as they were going um In Ramani. so we weren't the official working party of the cordon sweep. We were more of the overwatch, but that gave me more of the ability to look for what I was looking. So all they knew is, you know, Eric, you know, that your hippie is going to be tag teaming with them, right? And so the the neat odd conversation there was, hey, do you want to be with us when we go and do the, you know, we find your guy or direct action? I'm like, no, dude, that's that's your job. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 you know, and I'm like, no no no, dude, like you do your job. I got my job. If shit goes bad, uh, I'll I'll step in. But this is your primary job because I've got two or three other things that if something happens, I got to be able to do. So anyway, we went in the cover of darkness in and out of these houses till we found. So we found one of the houses where then there was indicators that uh, clued me in that that was a spot. My overall mission was, you know obviously this person we've been looking for them for about a year was leave that person in place, right? This is the greater, that's how that operates. You've found them, you've confirmed it visually, right? And the whole goal was not, not let that person realize that he had actually been targeted, that we were looking for him. So success in that mission was leaving this HVT, this high level guy believe that he had skirted us while wow. at the wow. same time there were culverts there were culvert stuff that was done right uh to to activity to you know certain things that were done confirmation leaving them in there uh and then we moved on however because there were then we were there the marines were around the rangers were around we hit a nerve right you hit a nerve not only for him maybe the cell that was around him didn't even really know who that who he was right. but they were you know they were just other simple terms other bad dudes they reacted to us and as i was coming out i was literally about to put my peltors on uh because i was sending a note back you know a quick note to confirm uh kind of like a jackpot if you would and as soon as i come out of those metal gates we get hit by an rpg and it was a real shock because you weren't expecting it we weren't hearing gunfire again like i said you hit that kind of nerve And as we were coming out of that one house, that RPG hit, you know, the other side of the block, which is, I don't know, meters. And I went from putting on my, you know, checking back on the team, being the first guy that gets out uh, and then just being slammed by the concussion onto that blue gate. And then the next five hours was just a gunfight. just movement back and forth, should I say.
2: So, uh, and and this is sort of behind the main advance or within that main advance.
3: Yeah, yeah, we were just one little small piece, again, hidden within that greater cordon suite that was going on. Um, And, you know, interesting then, by the time we secured, I think it was like two hours into it, not even that long, we had secured a rooftop, and then I had helped the JTAC um, with supporting fire, calling in pass, some other activities. At the same time, he had the radio. So I reported back to the task force, and like, hey, I, I found, we found the guy, what do you want me to do? And I, and I, and I love the commander at the time he posed like, hey dude, you, you think you want to bring him back? I'm like, uh, okay, sir, like we, we can. <laughs> this is what just happened. And, and the task force, the jock had seen the explosion. So they, we had odd eyes right, on, on, on my little team had all eyes uh, to protect this, this movement. And so um, that, that was, you know, at that point he, he said, hey, just leave him there. Um, into some of the mental health kind of stuff that we talked about. I just remember finalizing that comms with the commander, because that was my priority. Right. Not the gunfight, not the cause all of that kicked in instinctively if you if you would, but it was providing that message, getting that commander to say, All right, man, I'll see you when you get back. Go back, do all your hot wash, and then just only remembering waking up at the jock at my little, you know, little cot at the at where the task force is at what felt like two days later uh because i had just i did not remember um again i would only come to find this out you know whatever 20 years or not even that 15 years later when i retire
2: when um like when you're working in somebody's battle space like that i'm sure you have sort of a cover for action for the, the 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 troops that you're around But are the battle space commanders are the battle space owners generally clued in to what your actual mission is, or does it even bypass them?
3: You're gonna. You know the answer. It it depends. Uh, I think at the level where um, you know, calculated risk. If somebody's gonna get hurt, you're gonna you're gonna break something. You're gonna potentially do something. Uh, If you can do it underneath the radar, right? And and obviously, higher moral ground. Not violate anything ethically, right? Right. And, And not put uh, because my authorities, my authorities may be different than the people that uh, were, were catching a ride or they're using us. Um, at the reality where you, you know, the individual guy, operator, whatever team, any other team who's doing a similar activity will assess am I putting somebody into risk? Because hey man, th- you know, you don't look like them. I've taken a lot of, me- we've taken a lot of measures to look just like them. In that particular operation, uh, just really quick, like I went in wearing, uh, army regular army uniform which i don't even know why i even took them i think i took them so i can get out of country if i had to go to cutter right. right like i'd never wore them but i wore them to go be like the scouts because that's what they wore so i had their i had everything that they wore except i had a big beard but then the whole story was i was like i look like a turp so you can right. play that for those those 10 minutes you got that that gray area of 10 minutes um but you would tell the guy hey man you, know, you would trust somebody here this is here's what here's what's going on within left and right limits because you don't want to put somebody to put their ass in the line and in particular where you're you're reaching the, that scout team leader and now what happens is they're like oh my god this guy this task force guy no dude like don't worry about me worry about your team because i'm going to be gone right and i don't want you got to keep that rotation you got to keep on going and then also you want people to feel part of a greater something. Right. So I thank them, I would bring them in, you know, you're like, "Hey, that's the guy." And they're, you know, and they're like but they don't know there's so much shit going on. Right. And then a month later to this story, there's 15 hits across two major cities. So the dudes are probably like, "Okay, I was part of that." Right. Right? And and hopefully their commander went back and said, you were part of it. And, and I've seen that to be with a lot of my other former friends that they had built these relationship with these these commanders or these sergeant majors or these people that helped us. Um,
1: I So you're alluding to sort of the aftermath of this operation that they're there, down the line. There was an action taken against the the high value target that you were after that night.
3: Yeah, so that night, night, by the time I got back, I think I got back like a day later uh, or when I when I woke up and I got back. Um, we then went to work for about another month. And this was just intense, uh, you know, development of, of a target at, at the, at, you know, at, at the levels that you, you know, you kind of read about where all capabilities are brought in. It was just, it's just amazing. Like the teams, the teams, right? Like just, we brought in, all kinds of experts. We brought them in into this joint and just develop, 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 provided a variety of options. Um, and then the target sets grew and grew and grew. So when it's done, you know, it isn't just going, as you guys know, and go and just take out that bad guy just because it's the time is right. You you leave it up to other echelons to figure out what the best way to do it and when to do it. And then there's all kinds of authorities and, and stuff that happens. So there's some patients. So a month, essentially a month later than, uh, the Rangers, uh, you know, I went and then at this point I went in with specifically to go get that guy with a rager, a Ranger element that was with us there. And those guys were amazing. Uh, the funny, funny story is I went to the team leader uh, and I brief him I'm like, OK, right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be one of you know, 15 other hits. I, when you go in here, I'm going to go confirm and then I need you to pull everything out of there. And he's like, hey, Eric, uh, you do know that these are rangers. And if like, you tell them to pull everything off of that hit, they're going to pull the fucking microwaves. They're going to pull the lamps. They're going to pull chains. <laughs> right. Okay. Thank you. Like, only take anything that's electronic. He's like, anything that's electronic? I'm like, take anything that's electronic. So if someone can draw a picture of rangers hitting, you know, these two-story house, <laughs> taking these bad guys out, which is one thing. But literally carrying microwaves, carrying computers, carrying lamps. Because again, as you mentioned, you alluded Jack at that level, they're you know you're taking everything because you're, you're looking at so it at a state level. Right. right? It is so important. That was right. a huge SSC effort. Like it hadn't been done in a long time. But the Rangers were just they were just so happy to go do that. Right? Like they went in there dude, and they were so happy. Like I got the microwaves. Well, I got the lamp. They didn't know. You know. Uh, you got, five, a, they got five
2: guys like we on the fridge out. Yeah. I'm having like little I'm, little. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm having
1: flashbacks to an operation we did in Balad for some reason, even though we were Task Force North. And it's the same, same kind of thing. Yeah. They wanted us to pull all the electronics off of that mission. And we pulled the uh, we pulled everything. And then when we walked because the, the target was right next to the fob, we walked back onto the fob. And then, but there weren't trucks to, to meet us and drive us to the airfield to get on the 160th birds. And the sun's coming up, and 160th doesn't fly at not uh, during daylight. So the whole platoon of Rangers, and we're holding like computer CPUs and shit like that, like full tower computers, like running full sprint like a mile down the, down the road to the airfield so we can get on yeah. the birds and go back to our base. Uh, and really, I think the whole reason is just because we don't want to be stuck in Balad for a day. We want to go back to the chow right. hall and get some, <laughs> get some Red Bulls and, and whatever else. But yeah, that's, that's really funny.
3: <laughs> it, it, it was a great mission. I mean, it, you know, all of that stuff came back and then I'm like, all right, mission complete. Right. And this kind of goes to something that we were talking about earlier. I'm like, they, they captured all of these people. Now it is the, the next level of you know, of, of, of folks that are working this mission set. They're going to start the interrogations. They're going to start gathering the intelligence and they're going to do all of that. But I got to get home, right? Like it's not, you know, like my time is up, but that was my mission. And I'm already getting indicators that I got to train up for uh, other other things to go do, which I did. I ended up deploying literally three weeks later in a completely different hemisphere for a hostage rescue type thing, uh, which had been going on for a long time, which I was very happy that I got to go do. But when I got back, I, it then came to the higher powers and go, hey, you've built a relationship with this person and the entity, and you know them so well. I had psychiatrists that actually worked for us, that were just understanding how these people think, breathe, and, the, and that, that hole was fusing on a whiteboard, right? We had this whiteboard of death, and everything was being put in there. And they're like yeah, the boss wants you to go and you're going to go and, and hang out with the gators for a week because you have built a relationship with this individual uh, because ultimately you, you guys have figured out and that's really simply how you can um, get a little bit more cooperation.
1: Oh, that, so, well, so you, so, so you actually had that scene, like in the movie, the battle of Algiers where they're sitting in the back of the car. Like, I feel like I know you because I've, I've tracked you for so long.
3: <laughs> uh it, it um, yeah. I mean, I had to go back in there, and so I, I got to sit and watch a day of the process going, and then the next day I was in the booth for uh, about two or three days um, in that cycle. Um,
1: how, 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 which, did, how did how did, how did this gentleman respond uh, to ha- to having you there?
3: It was kind of checkmate.
1: Yeah, we got you. It,
3: mm-hmm. it was it, it was that sense of. Uh, it was checkmate at, at the level of, um, you know, I- I- if you would, Dave, the, you know, the, the IC officer to the IC officer, right? Mm-hmm. At that trade cra- at that, at that level, you're like, okay, you got me. Um, you know, and that, that's actually been later on. It, it, we used it in, in again, to, to you talk about it at the schoolhouse of what's, I hey, mean, we didn't know this was going to happen, but this is what, we can do this is what people can do these are the ideas we bring out and because you're trusted at this level well you're going to move forward with it and again i, I was packing to go home and and but then we went and we did it and it, it was successful and it's not and obviously I, I was a small fraction of it there are just so many other professionals and mechanisms that helped us facilitate but we're just those out of the box thinkers that say how about this and they, they're they going okay well you know if this this did." thinks we can do it then let's give it a try and mm-hmm. and, and that's awesome
1: that's wild man
0: Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Uh,
1: And I mean, that's just an incredible um, and and kind of rare story, I think, of of espionage taking place inside a war zone. Yeah. Um, Could you tell us a little bit, uh, you alluded to uh, being next sent on a completely different mission and a completely different AO um, to locate American hostages. Um, I was wondering, you know, what can you tell us about that? What was it like kind of bouncing from Ramadi to a, a totally different AO? Cause you
2: had been working on this all prior to, right?
1: Yeah. Um,
3: you know, to, I'm going to keep trying to keep that one simple. And sure. so there had been say a few of them. There's you. probably one that's a little bit more noticeable and a lot, Closer to home for folks, right? And and uh, I, we, uh, the greater soft community, was one part of it. But when you've got um, Americans captured hostage, I- I've seen the energy that goes behind taking bad, you know, bad people off the streets. Um, I have seen a different level of dedication and passion um, to go rescue our Americans. Right? It's just a completely different world, and so. Probably, I don't want to. I'm going to kind of speculate. Maybe two years prior to that, in and out, Uh, and and it was just as opportunities were seen. Again, you were doing something else, studying, learning, whatever. You were going to go do that, and then you can come back and do another one. So that one, I I still hadn't even again known that what what a traumatic brain injury was. I had no idea Mm -hmm. what that was. Uh, But there was, uh, as everything happens, uh, new information, new developments new equals new opportunities. And then you're, you're sent to the fight. Uh, I had nothing to do with in that aspect. Part of the planning it was just, again, one of the folks that by name said, all right, Skippy, here's what we're going to go do. And then it went from leave Ramadi. And I've talked about it this before is putting everything that went on from a year prosecuting that target in uh, all the combat trauma, all of that. And, and even also acknowledging um, and I, I, I'm remiss if I don't say it. All, all the all, all the service members that were killed in that time in Iraq in Ramadi. That weighs heavily, and unfortunately, you see it, but you've got to put it away. If not, it's hard to operate sometimes at those levels. Uh, but I put Ramadi into that Melilla folder and I put it at the safe at my team room and locked it up and prepared for the other one. And that literally was get back into the mission, understand what's going you know, you're going to go and dress completely different. You're going to go do completely. It's all a literally a different world. Right. And there's higher, there's higher level of, I don't want to say it's risk uh, or compromise, but sensitivities uh, that are in play with it. So you got to check your mind. You got to check where you're at and then went off and did it. Um, And I want to say that that point was, it wasn't successful, which a lot of times in our world, there's a lot of things that don't lead to success at that moment. But like they do later on, and so you're kind of used to. Hey, I move that football just a little bit more forward mm-hmm. for the next option. And so we did. We did go down, integrated. I think we went down for maybe two or three weeks, um, and then hey, there's nothing else to do because of other things have to come into play, and it takes a, that world to rescue folks. It, it it isn't black and white. It's not like dropping a day J dam. I mean, this is a this is a chess game. Right, and there's things that have to be put in place and sometimes they'll take weeks. So, okay, back you go and and then you're doing it, and something else. Uh ultimately um that did culminate into a success. I wanna say I was probably in the Horn of Africa or somewhere, um, when that um you know, those American hostages were rescued, and I can tell you, everybody, anybody that was involved in it just Easily shed tears, just joy to know that our folks came back um, and that we had a part of it, Mm. a a part in it. Um, Yeah, that that was just some of the greater highlights.
1: I'm not going to I won't drop any dimes here, Eric. I'll I'll just say I think it's fascinating that officially the role that you and many others played in, in recovering those American citizens is completely unacknowledged. People have no freaking idea.
2: Okay, <laughs> Eric. You know, we when we talk to a lot of service members and intelligence professionals, you know, one of the challenges they have, which gets mixed in, I think, with post traumatic stress, like it all joins together, and it, it, including the TBIs, but but is also the shifting of gears, right? Going from, you know, hundred miles an hour mm-hmm. in a combat zone with With no decompression, no like uh, sort of venting function from the government to back to civilian life and that that's very hard to go to do this ramping, and even that creates its own sort of low grade post traumatic stress in a while with one foot on the brake, one foot on the gas all the time. But for mm-hmm. you and others like you, it wasn't just shifting gears. From going from operational at, you know, 100 miles an hour, killing what's in front of you or whatever, to back at home, trying to fit in with people at, you know, TGIF or whatever, TGI Fridays or, or whatever, or, or Outback or yep. whatever. But but you were actually also going on operationally, still still in a high stress environment, but with a completely different focus and a completely different. So how, how hard was that for you? Did you, did you, cause this is this, I'm going to make this a bigger question because one of the things you mentioned when you talked about <clears throat> sort of your um, uh, expression of post-traumatic stress or, or these things being different than like a dev grew guy or a CAG guy, uh, do you feel that guys in your world compartmentalize and detach a lot more because that's sort of part of the job? And then, so you almost have this sort of anhedonia, you know, this, this lack of feeling uh, that that becomes your survival mechanism. Uh,
3: yes. And, um, you know, not and in those guys, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not an assaulter at all. Come from those organizations. I've worked really close with those organizations. Uh, uh, I've made friendships with a lot of them early on when when I started my career in 2000 in this unit, and across the time frame. And and I've seen a lot of them suffer uh, from post-traumatic stress and and traumatic brain injuries. The what I will say is then um, you know, and, and each organization protects. Um, their activities differently. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll say this simply, but you know, a SEAL is a SEAL. So a SEAL does SEAL stuff. Okay. So the sp- I'm, I'm assuming the spouses and the children of a SEAL and every SEAL know that those dudes are going to be constantly in danger because that's what they do. And that's what they're really good at doing. Special forces, same thing the Rangers, the Marines, and then um, however, guys from CAG. Uh, and however that world um, but their cycles in the way that they train and the way that they deploy um you know in, in and again i'm just generalizing here in in, in three to four month rotations that kind of stays in par with what you know the the special operations is doing for deployment now in the world of um sort of intelligence special operations and in a unique world for a lot of unique small organizations is that then we don't have those same cycles and What happens at work literally stays at work because at at a, you know, and it's nothing because it's super sexy and, you know, James Bond crap, but because it's classified work, right? And so anybody that works in the IC, in the intelligence community, they leave their work there and they can't talk about it. And so we have a large aspect of that. And I would say this in general in, in sort of military intelligence and then mix that with special operations. So... We tend to compartmentalize a lot, and I've mentioned this before, on a personal level. And I will say that I did wrong. Uh, I probably had a lot of opportunities to tell my family that I got hit by an RPG, that I almost feared getting imprisoned, that I, you know, stomped my head and passed, whatever. All of these really bad things that happen, as well as even share accomplishments. Hey man, I just came back from a rotation and something really good happened why you my son went to the hospital when i left and you had to deal with the bills there's a good outcome but we didn't even share good bad or indifferent. Mm. right because you compartment and a lot of that in a selfish perspective um i didn't want you know my wife to take away my kitchen pass right and, and go you're done or i'm going to divorce you because we have high rates of divorce and a lot of the divorces were i don't know what you're doing but i know it's not good for the family And so we tend to compartmentalize, hopefully it's getting better that that it has to get better where folks that are doing this level of work or any level of work in the military, um, learn to deal with PTS and TBIs upfront when you get back from rotation. And so we tend to compartmentalize more because of the type of work that we do. And again, it it doesn't come home. For me personally, the way I always conditioned myself for the ways my mentors taught me I, I never took anything home. There was nothing home. There was no souvenirs when you came home from a trip. You know, there's just set rules. You leave it in your in your, in your wall locker and maybe you bring it home five years later because Joe went to Africa and he brought you that elephant.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: It's just the way it is because at the end, you're you're protecting not only the organization and as we've all talked about it, you're really protecting that person to the left and to the right of you by these little things because in this level where there's less room for error you you, you got to check that ego, right? Uh, you got to check it at the door. And so there is a lot more compartmentalization. Now, the mental aspect of it is I don't think anybody when GWAT started thought that getting hit by grenades and RPGs and being shot at or being compromised or being singleton stuff or going in and out. Um, moral injury is another one that people think, well, maybe only assaulters have moral mm. injury because they killed a bunch of people. Right. Moral injury extends to, you know, I told my wife all the time. I said, I I didn't, all intents and purposes, I never lied to you, but I didn't tell you the truth. Right. Right. There's a lot of moral injury that today I don't remember. Right. Really what I suppressed, when I suppressed it, where I was at. Till I'm looking at photographs going, oh, fuck, I was, I couldn't sleep. I was talking, I was over drinking, I was an asshole, right, or something happened, and I left it in the team room in that safe because that's how I learned to deal with it, so I'll stop there just in case you yeah kind of wanted to. Uh, pull i mean it, it, it
1: sounds it sounds like a cliche, but um i I can imagine here how like your mind becomes a labyrinth over time and just the psychological pressure is, it must be so immense and I, I want I want to get into um the 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 kind of toll that doing this line of work takes on people in a bit um but i i did also want to hit up some of these other stories that we had talked about um yeah you had mentioned one where you had to initiate the emergency destruction plan of your equipment and uh, i was wondering if you could tell us as much as you can about that operation and why you had to go down the that, I mean, maybe you can also explain what the emergency destruction plan is for people who don't get okay. it.
3: Yeah, and, uh, you know, it, it was – man, I, I think it went over almost against every fiber in my body uh, to even acknowledge that or even, again, now I'm, I'm realizing that if I did, didn't say anything to my family. That's kind of my Lintops test, right? Uh, and then, again, there was other people involved in these things, uh, and then there's other folks that have had similar scenarios that I hope they're listening and I hope that they figure out that you, you need to work through it, uh, the things that we've, or anybody else has gone through. So in, in particular, this one, um, I actually did put it in my you know, PTSD paperwork at the VA, took a little bit because of the sensitivities involved around it. Uh, but I did get help figuring out that, oh yeah, I had to do, which is right, classified, classified for the five Ws of it, uh, except the how or why or whatever, you know, what actually transpired. Uh, And so it was, um, you know, it was an operation um, doing uh, intelligence work. Um, And what an emergency destruction plan is is kind of like a an oh shit plan, right? And and so if you're gonna get compromised, one man, five man, ten man, an airplane, wherever you're at, uh, you 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 got to send it, guys. You know, in a tactical world, I remember uh, at least formatively as a Sade, that would be take a thermite grenade, you put it in your backpack, you would hope that that thermite grenade would go down, right? I think I I, I pretended to do that one time in a JRX, and I kind of passed that one. Uh, Well, sometimes you don't get to carry thermite grenades, right? So the level of some of these operations, you you got to be way more creative. Um, And at least in my experience and the experience of the folks that – were in, in, involved in this session of this mission line and guys that have taught me i don't think anybody else had had done one i later on i did come to find that and maybe somebody did something similar because you're always going to have these hairy sh- scenarios but uh i'm so glad i, did, I didn't have to pay the bill because i destroyed a lot of stuff I, I think i was like what is it a 15-6 or f- whatever it was i i got back and i thought i had done good and then like you're getting investigated i'm like where the fuck does that work out? Anyway, so there I am. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're working in, in an environment that has very little room for, for error. Um, and it meets, meets the threshold. Something, uh, an activity uh, meets the threshold with, uh, two, two guys that I, I, um, I think the world of, uh, for their actions and then funny stories later on. I have to kind of process how I say them. But I get the phone call, right? There's that dreaded phone call with, you know, you see this in the movies with, you know, hey, the the red cow is about to take a poop. Well, that means (laughs) you need to go do A, B, C, D, E and and, and go. And that means that then turns into muscle memory. There's no thinking that has to be planned. That's methodical, that's timing. And so I get the phone call uh, and I go through the process. Uh, I think at that point, we hadn't thought about only doing it with one person. Um, there was a little, uh, uh, you know, a gray area there. Um, it was manageable, but um, there was a lot of things to break, sanitize, right? Uh, and then, and then, you in, in part of the destruction, emergency destruction plan is also an escape and evade aspect of it. So, part of that is twofold: it was destroy and get the hell out of there and go. And then go means there's a plan. And I think my plan on paper was like two days. And later on, I'm like, I'm don't know, I could have walked that far, right? Like, it was one of these elaborate, like, go downhill, get on a boat, go across this river, you're in another country, and now you're just gonna go that way. I think I I just did the, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I I know what to do. Like, it's never gonna happen, but it happened. However, in this aspect, um, I'm then halfway, I get the bag, I destroy everything, do everything I need to do within protocols. Um, One part of it that we didn't know is, it's really hard sometimes to destroy things when you don't have thermites mm-hmm. and you've got to take your hands to it. And now you've got this adrenaline, right? We know what adrenaline is. We know how your eyes are gonna go down and you start ripping, but now your hands start getting bloody, right? And because you're breaking plastic and plastic starts to cut. And after a while, you're, you've got your, your your body's and your heart rates going, but now blood in your hands is really slippery, right? And not only is it making a mess, at that point I'm like, I'm not even worried about DNA. I'm not even thinking about it. I'm just thinking about I can't hold crap in my hands and there's blood everywhere. So I'm destroying stuff. My hands are getting bloody. Uh, I wash up as best as I could. I, I sanitize as best as I could. Um, and then I start moving out and then I get a phone call. Hey man, it's, you, you, you gotta come back. Um, wasn't thought about. In order to make everything go back to green, right? Uh, if you would, simple is green. Yellow is you're, you're kind of in danger. Red is you're in danger. So to get back to green, You need to get back. And so that's not quite anything I ever thought about. So I literally have to come back uh, and just accommodate things in order to get back to green. And so that took a lot of creativity of why at the end, you know, just like you see in the, what is it, the the ID channel, you know, why did the murderer have blood in his hand? Well, why the hell do you have blood in your hand? Mm -hmm. Because you say you're doing X, Mm -hmm. but you're really doing Y. And so that ended up being good. Uh, I had some creativity on the spot to um, explain why I have blood in my hand, why they were crap, but I had to reenact and put kind of things back in place. And then, you know, my, my, my uh, essentially you know, everything got back to green. Uh, and then but a couple of days later, we wrap up, we get out of there and go kind of back to what we were talking about. And we didn't even get to go home. Then subsequently, there's that, you know, that frago. Hey, man, I know you, you kind of destroyed everything, but you guys need to stay here for another month because we need you for something else the answer is okay let us figure it out so that's that story that's
2: crazy that is that (laughs) is you know it's interesting because on the show before we've talked about the weight of decisions you make that you have to make right like when you're on patrol and you see a guy with a cell phone do you shoot him or do you not if he's triggering an ied and you haven't shot him you you just failed your team if you shoot him and he's an innocent then you just committed a, a horrific act i mean we saw was it in 2001 when the ep3 went down or uh right in china In the china one, right yeah and they didn't it's destroy the same time oh, okay. right and they didn't destroy the equipment because and people go how could they not do that they had procedures in place that's a lot of weight on them if they destroy that equipment and then our government turns around and tells them why did you destroy that equipment like you know whatever like that's a lot of weight those those are heavy decisions because you like you said, you're glad they didn't make you pay for it right or, or
3: yeah I mean I, I I try to make kind of you know funny even though it is a true story you know, and later on in, into the future, I would always think about that and then I'm like, okay, that's kind of silly. Right. Like, I need to make sure when I do a mission back brief, if we got to do this, you're not fucking going to go and go chase these people because they did what you just agreed we're going to do. Right. Track. Right. Lesson three. Because sometimes we get so procedurally used to what's going to go wrong till things go wrong. And then, oh, unfortunately, it always ends up in a, an investigation. Good organizations, good companies learn from that and change everything so it doesn't happen again. So then the folks are going to do it they're not like hey man you remember what happened to Eric or what happened <laughs> to these guys? Yeah. Fuck that. And what 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 happens is you compromise the system. Right. You compromise the integrity of how you're supposed to work. Right. So continue to A, take care of your freaking people all the way to the end because they're going to give you they're going to give their lives for you. They're going to go to jail. They're going to freaking, you know, sit in a cell somewhere and you know, but be there to back them up because you know those, you know, being an American hostage, and there's been very many of them. Dude, that's a world I never wanted to be in. Like I'd right. rather have, and I've never told my wife. Like I'd rather have been shot, blown up, killed, but to be captured. Right. I still had I still have nightmares about that. Like right. It still goes into that hyper vigilance that folks that have been, and it doesn't matter what you did in the military or if you were even an undercover police officer you don't want to get ratted. You don't want to get found. Like right. Eric, you're, you're I, just not going
1: to, I was wondering if you could tell us about some of those times where you were afraid of being captured because I know, you know, you had mentioned yep. doing singleton operations on a few occasions. And again, I mean, back to the amount of psychological stress you're under, I mean, that's a, a very different scenario than being part of a uh, Delta squadron or a Ranger platoon or, or a conventional infantry company. Um, What were some of those uh, some of those instances that, you know, really stick with you?
3: Yeah. And I I mean, I'll say I'm not I'm not the only one that's ever that's ever done that. A lot of a lot of folks, um, you know, have been tasked to do things and what essentially is a singleton. You're by yourself there, but in the shadows and if you would that's a bad word in the background, there's people helping you. Right. Like there's no you're just going to go to yourself generally in this country and do stuff by yourself you're going to have an element, but it is your ass on the line by yourself. You don't have a buddy to your left and to your right. Right. It's just you and and what, and what you're doing. And so, um, I, I did have one in sort of mid two thousands, uh, post Ramadi, post some of the other stuff that I did. And, And at that point I was already kind of worn down a little bit. Um, and so one of the, in that rotation, I, uh, um, you know, essentially found, um, and entrusted to do some placement and access, if you would. So the ability to develop, gain access, and kind of work my way closer. Um, while in the, you know, while in the back, I, I knew the same elements you just mentioned w- would be there to, to, to take care of me. Uh, um, but there, there was an instance going in and out uh, of a facility that I worked at was, was that high level of stress right just getting bags in developing the relationships to have people not blink an eye right that took that took weeks to to develop and then you're going in and out and essentially you're you're sleeping there by yourself you're living your life every day uh, uh, as uh, as you need to and then you're and then you're operating when when it's the right time to do things uh kind of that wave of the hand if you would to to keep it simple and so I had been doing this uh several days about a week um and there were like always there's some, always something going on around you and this was city so city the the and this was a hostel this is literally a hostile environment uh, it was in Iraq and Afghanistan and so there wasn't a lot of uh US uh, entity just running around it's very select folks running around and so in that one in working uh, had um, not only a weapon, but I had some other capabilities and things that I was doing across the spe- spectrum of ints. Um, and then um, there was one time that the lights in the city went off, right? And before that I was getting, I would do a comms check with sort of another, another operator uh, that was back in an area. I would do my comm shots, if you would communicate, get my instructions, here's what I'm gonna do. You know here's my you know updated emergency plan if something goes on here's my schedule for the day i'm out right and that's how you kind of work um and it was a part that hey hey man by the way here's the threat level <laughs> it's going up right we're going from we're going to red and what really matters is they're targeting americans right still an american uh however little brown guy that you look like you're still you're not from there sorry you're not from there and so at the same time, I was getting closer and closer and kind of creating some, uh, some, uh, avenues into what I needed to facilitate. So when I come back, then you're always, you know, there, you get tired. You start to do your checks and balances. Okay. I don't remember that person. I don't remember this. This person's new. I've never seen that person in my car, right? Like all of this starts to build up, which there are always multiple things going on around you. It is just identifying which one. It's focused on you right like there's criminals, there's other intel work there's mm-hmm. always a multitude of things going on. It's just having that clear mind and so one night i'm uh um i'm I'm at the site that i'm at where I was living um and at that point, I had a big toll, so unfortunately, I had probably been drinking a little bit more than I needed to mm-hmm. needed to and and I was exhausting myself to go to sleep in order to continue to operate day to day-, day. I was reaching that, that really bad threshold. And the entire lights in that city go off. Like, all of it. There's no power. And so the critical lifeline that I had was Kamal. And as you guys know, when Kamal's done, I don't care how many guns you got. I don't care how fast you can run. I don't yeah. care what what indigenous clothes you're wearing. You got no combo, man. That's when you feel, that's when that gut feeling. And so the power had gone down. And I was essentially probably within minutes of packing up and making a run for it, right? Because I would have met certain time windows and then there was luckily uh, elements uh, that they were doing their own stuff around that that knew, hey, if this happened, you're gonna go help this one knucklehead doing his own thing. So that ended up being, uh, to get to a point in a variety of ways, um, one of a major uh, PTS for me uh, because I, I, I slept with my pistol um, at my pillow. Um, for various nights, you know, in a nice soft bed, but I had a pistol. I had all the measures to know if the door was open. I shouldn't have been doing that, right? Like that pistol should have been a tertiary thing to get to. It should have been kind of more concealed. Everything else would have been more of my protection. My gun was the last, but the gun was the first thing. And so when those lights went off and at the level that I was at, that that, that was really hard. Um, to be in that scenario. And so, till today, uh, not that today, I think, you know, it took, it took probably going back a couple of months and even recent, the SGB, Segla Globin Block, to kind of take that fight flight, cause that ramped me up really, really high. And there was no one coming no down. There was no one coming no down because I really didn't talk about it when I got back home. Never talked about it to our docs. Never talked about it to my spouse. It went back in that envelope. And that was mid, mid, you know, two thousands. Um, and then it just kept on, kept on working.
2: Eric, can I, I, I mean, I hopefully we'll talk, uh, more in a broader spectrum about post-traumatic stress after this, because it's, it's a big Mm -hmm. deal. And we tried to talk it on the show, talk about it on the show, but can you tell us a little bit about the, um, about the, uh, what is it? The stellate ganglion block, right? Yeah. Yeah, so the Titanic Island
3: block, um, you know, and again, I'm not a doctor, and I, I yeah. just, uh, don't, don't know anything. You know. So this is my, my fourth one. I just did uh, two of them uh, the last week um, with uh, Doc Mulvaney, former Navy SEAL-turned-Army-Doc uh, extraordinaire. Um, and so the SGB, I, I want to say, it, I'm going to throw a number out there, probably about 10 years ago, 10, 13 years ago, became something that was then being used in in at least the special operations community to help with post-traumatic stress. Essentially what it does is they put, I want to say it's lidocaine on the sympathetic nerve going obviously up to the brain. And essentially it it just numbs it. Well, what does that do for us who've been in these fight or flight syndromes, these high stress levels? And again, it's not only veterans, it's not only military. It can be unfortunately, you know, someone who got raped or had a really bad stressful environment they got they got stuck and they couldn't make the loop of coming off the fight or flight and what it does is essentially for me from my higher understanding just it's stopping it right Uh it's allowing you to reset and what it did for me that first time where this is 2019 so again i got shot in 1999 came into the unit had all you know just about it seems like every trip i had an incident or something was going on twenty nineteen, So that's a lot of fight, fight or flight syndrome. And so what that did to me was take off what felt, you know, like an 80 pound ruck, just your body feels alleviated and your emotions just, you know, what do we do with most sort of our emotions? You just start to cry. You just start to release. Um, and, and you start to feel. I know most guys who have PTS or girls, um, at least in this line of work stop feeling you stop being able to be sympathetic on the stuff that you are going through so the scb has been and hopefully this answer it uh just an amazing uh therapy or procedure to help you know alleviate and grow post post traumatic stress
2: and uh, like how long uh after you receive a shot do you does it last for for you
3: uh they say it's typically six months and i would say that that's about right so my first one was Um, Right after uh, the two guys, uh, two friends of mine that committed suicide in 2019. So I got that one. And then six months later, almost to the T, when I was really getting into the medical aspect of retiring, which is now I'm understanding all the shit that's broken, I did my second one. And that was about six, seven months ago or six uh, six months prior to the, the first one. And so they typically say it's about six months past the first one. Um, and then I went along on this last two. It was probably about a year and something, uh, because I, the first two were on, on active duty and unfortunately the VA and civilian healthcare isn't paying for it. So it took me a little while. And so the last ones I just did a week ago were on the, typically they do it on the right side and now they're also doing it on the left side that, um, um, is also um, helping for traumatic brain injuries.
2: So, so the VA is not covering this. They won't
3: cover out of pocket. In other words, they won't send you. Uh, from my research and the research that has been done with a nonprofit that I'm working with, the VA won't say, "Okay, go to go to the Stegler like, you know, the, the, this institute to get it done." There, they are certain VA hospitals. They will do it. From my understanding, for folks that have tried, it has just been. Her rent. it's been very difficult for them to get an appointment in a timely manner yeah. to go get an SGB.
2: Yeah. And I, so, I, right. Yeah. I, I Not to say anything about the doctors and the medical staff at the VA, because I, I generally think they're good, but the administration, I think their plan is to wait yep. out vets, like let them die before we have to pay for anything. Well, let's delay stuff as much as possible.
3: The, the, the hardest part, just really quick on this is if we do it on active of duty, why are we not doing that at the VA side? Right. Like if a soldier, Marine or service member, that was part of the get well plan on active duty a year prior to getting out. And they're diagnosed with PTS, a traumatic brain injury. And all of a sudden you literally are spitting them out of the active duty care system. There's a gap. Yeah. You know, into the veteran system. And then you're not following up with that care. Right. I think you're, 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 that's, you know, you're, you're causing more issues, uh, and that can probably hurt
2: that person. Do you Do you want to plug the nonprofit that you mentioned that you're working with?
3: I, I can if you don't. You know, thank you. Uh, sure. So right now, I'm uh, I got brought in as a team member to the Military Special Operations Family Collaborative. Okay. Essentially, what they do is they they focus on research, education, and connection. Right. And so what? Um, and there's a, a huge uh, team or a huge a grouping of other nonprofits, uh, All Secure uh, Foundation, uh, uh, Warrior's Heart and, a, and a Healing. And there's a couple of other ones, really key ones right now, unfortunately it's invading me. Um, but what, they'll, they, what they're focusing on is, is taking research from these in- institutes and these other nonprofits and these things that are working, going, okay, this is proven medically, this is proven peer wise, this is proven across, you know, various other in- institutes, and then we—they uh, provide education. They're providing education at certain commands at special operations, which is good. So these special operations command are are, are bringing in uh, these entities to uh, allow us to share what we've learned from those outside of active duty, right? Because there's there's you know, a different aspect to that, and then they connect. And there's a lot of connecting of. Just like what I did with with SGB, and in particular, uh, they just had a couple of soft uh, soft team room health uh, events that we had online, and there's another one coming on May where we had uh, uh, Doctor Lynch, Doctor T D, and uh, two other doctors um, um, talking about SGB and psychedelics. So again, the reason we're sharing this is because they've done the research at, at a high level to go, okay, this is this is being proven had multiple commands right the seals the rangers whatever and so that's essentially um who i'm uh, i'm teaming up with uh, with a lot of these fronts
2: yeah we've had a couple vets on that uh, of sam juan and a couple others who have talked about the benefits of like psychedelic treatments tra- tra- uh down at, like uh, was mm-hmm. it was ut austin where they
1: there's uh, a couple different places yeah but uh,
2: but where like people are having great effects from it. this what what you're talking about the uh uh the uh, the game the basil or what is it the G G B, S G B, S G B. gb sgb sgb um yep i've heard about that before and i've heard that people have had really good effects at least like yep. short-term relief from it you know
3: yeah there's no i mean i'll, I'll tell you besides the funkiness it, and you guys come you know from an environment where like okay we put a neater in your neck yeah. okay well that's about it <laughs> right like, they're not removing anything right they're not putting anything in like I've yet to in the research piece of it go. Somebody grew something out of their forehead. Right, like, it hasn't happened. The right. most in the the quick test within minutes is that eye. Um, um, so on my right side, your right eye literally freaks out, um, and so that's the test to go. Okay, it worked.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so for those of you who are listening and watching. The organization that he mentioned, is you can find it at msofc.org.
1: I'd never even heard of that one. Yeah, I haven't either. It's
2: the Military Special Operations Family Collaborate, msoffoxtrotccharlie.org, if you guys want to check that out. And
1: so, Eric, there's a whole bunch of other stuff you did in the military that we're not – I don't think we're going to have time to get to tonight. Uh, we'll have to we'll have, sorry. to we'll have to do this no, again sometime. Sorry. No. It's yeah.
2: But, Damn you for having such an, an amazing uh, career. Yeah, I,
1: I mean you I know you spent a lot of time um, doing like force modification work developing the new generation yeah. of technologies for uh for the special operations community. Um I, I would like to um take some time to talk about getting out of the unit, getting out of this clandestine world. Um And I I had mentioned to you previously that, you know, we interviewed, um, Sarah Carlson on the show once, who was a CIA analyst. And she really talked to us about how an analyst can have PTSD. I mean, and I think the public thinks like, how can somebody who sits behind a computer all day have PTSD? And they don't understand the type of pressure this person is under to get it right a hundred percent of the time, which of course is impossible. Right. Um, I, I think that the public understands at this point that we have these soldiers, we have these hardcore dudes who we send into combat overseas, they shoot and kill bad guys, sometimes there's collateral damage, um, sometimes they see their teammates killed, and this leads to this phenomena that we call post-traumatic stress disorder, um, but I think the public has a harder under, uh, harder time understanding um, people like Sarah Carlson, the, the analyst side, or people like yourself, Eric, who are uh, on sort of the technical intelligence side, not necessarily pointing a gun and shooting people. I think that there's – I'd like to take a little bit of time to kind of unpack your experience for people. I think this entire interview has done that a little bit. But to further uh, go into your path getting out of the military and and sort of some of the issues and the unique – aspects of your job that lead to a different type of post-traumatic stress. Okay.
3: Yeah. So a lot of it was uh, acknowledgement, right? So there's the, what, uh, again, as I mentioned, kind of putting it in Pandora's box, just so I can, uh, I can go out to another trip and um, I can pass the test with the doc or the psych who says, okay, Eric's clear to go out. Mm -hmm. Right. That was literally the, that was literally my, you know, five meter night fight. For 20 years or whatever, uh, and most guys uh, and girls, in the variety of things that they went through a lot of and they saw a lot of stuff that you just lose sleep, it's just not normal, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then you can't talk about it. There's no, there's also this stigma. So, I think mm-hmm. part of it, maybe what you didn't mention, is there's a huge stigma mm-hmm. about a vulnerability that, uh, you know, bombs dropping on people and people getting killed or you know, we're saving stuff, then you should be able to... No, you're, we're still freaking human beings. This isn't a video game, right? And and the GWAT has been going on for a long time, and it's been nonstop, right? And so that's a, another a, a key aspect of it. And so for me personally, reaching 2019, there were several key aspects of it. and And, and hopefully... Um, It relates to others who are in similar um, positions getting ready to retire or ETS or have gotten out and now can uh, look back and go, man, you know, maybe that's a a good idea. Is if you have a family and, you know, and that can be uh, um, a significant other or your children or even your mom and your dad, uh, you, you want to give back to them. You want to be able to say, here's what I was doing for all these years because I know you suffered. You saw me, right? Here's the key thing. Uh, perspectives. Like I can tell myself I was okay until I'm starting to look back at those pictures going, dude, you look like shit. Mm -hmm. Like you were beat down. You were having issues, medically, marital, family, friendships. Once you start to retire, you're you're really coming to it. Hopefully most people come to come into Jesus and go, I need to close this chapter and I need to go to the next one because if you've learned anything from reading or watching some of these podcasts is, I don't care how bad of an ass you were or how tough you were, you're gonna have some remnants of what you went through. right? Mm. And so for me, it was, all right, I, because of the suicides, that was literally what tripped me and I fell flat on my face. I went into a dark corner and said, I went back to those skills that I did have of self-assessment and ability to self-adjust and go, all right, the right thing to do right now, Eric, is ask for help, and I asked for help. And so part of asking for that help as I was getting ready to retire was, hey, you you need to open those Pandora boxes and figure out all of these things that you went through and how did it really affect you, like right? mm-hmm. The PTS, TBI, it's moral injuries. Oh yeah, Aho, you weren't around when your wife needed you, your children needed you, your family needed you. And for me personally, one of the aspects of it was, I cut away from a lot of my family 29 years ago when I came into the military. Again, you know, for simple terms, they were Cubans and I didn't want any of that to hinder my family or hinder my ability to serve this nation. So I cut ties with my family. So there's a lot of guilt associated with that. Uh So when I started to look at my transition, there is a selfish aspect, which I hope some folks take to it, which is, hey, man, you've done a lot to serve this country. If you're entitled to VA benefits, uh, then take the time and focus on that because going through that VA process will also help you find care and help because you're gonna acknowledge you're broken somewhere and then you're gonna get treatment. So as I started to open that box, identify that I had issues um, and started to document it, then I would start working on that aspect of it. and importantly was okay what kind of person am i going to be post military doesn't matter how cool you know all the cool stuff you do how am i going to provide for my family post because literally when you get out i got out 30 september 1 october i'm a civilian i'm no longer sergeant major Miatis. i am now eric miatis and that's it there's nothing else that matters but i'm now eric Miatis who's responsible for a family and i got to get my I now have to really get my head straight because I got to be a civilian and take care of them to what they want because they weren't, they didn't sign up to serve this country. So there's a lot of aspects of transition, especially if you're married, if you're married that now that weight um, and you got to work through a marriage and you got to, you got to fix a marriage, heal a marriage post that service. And, and what you've heard you know, in the last two, three hours is that in all of that, who really suffered are the family members right. that have to endure all of this. Right. Hopefully that kind of answers Jack
1: and you It's an overview for sure. Yeah. I'm scratching the surface. And,
2: and we've, you know, we've talked about this before where, you know, there, there's this big, you know, thank you for your service culture, which is appreciated. But at the end of the day, especially for people in special operations, we, we were doing it because we wanted to, like there was no draft. Right. There was no, we were all in it for our own reasons that were ultimately selfish in some ways. And the people who really, and I'm not like, you know, we all have our demons and, and, and post traumatic stress is real, but also the people who really suffered were, were the wives and the kids and, and the husbands in some cases, but the, but the families that were left behind that weren't out there living their dream. You know, we're out sure. there yep. doing and, the cool guy stuff that they—they're
1: living with the uncertainty. You
2: know, you know, yeah, you know, at any any moment, you know, somebody could kick in your door, and you know, when when you're in some you know non-permissive environment and take you hostage, but you signed up for that. You want like that's the life you wanted on some level, and we suffer from that, but but the families didn't sign up for that. And and we forget sometimes, and the divorce rates in special operations, and and I'm sure in your unit, are astronomical. And you cannot blame spouses for feeling left behind when when yeah. we just go do our thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean that can be an entire conversation on it. I, I would say that. I mean, we took advantage of uh, knowing that our family would be there for mm-hmm. us, right? Like uh, There's there a few things that I told my wife, and the one thing I I, I I would say I promised, because I had awful intent, literally was to walk home. Because walking in special operations is a core of what we do, right? That mindset that I can walk back. It's a car, Vic, so I, I would always promise I will walk back if at any case, and that again means being compromised, and if I, I've got a fight my way, chew my way out of somewhere. I'm going to walk back home.
2: But what does that mean to them? Right. That's okay, not something asshole. a, a spouse fuck? wants to hear.
3: They don't want to hear that. They right. want to be able to hear like, Hey, as soon as you leave, your kid's going to get sick and the mortgage is going to come in. And that bill's going to, cause here's, I know what we were doing. Right. And I mentioned this and I, and I think I had not said this is I was always, I came home to be on TDY and I went home to deploy. Right. I lived. Twenty years, at least, more so till I figured it out. Forward, either in missions, training, embedded in some agency, doing something, and then I came home to TDY, hoping to hurry up and get and get out of here. Right now, the reality, and and it's it is probably the hardest thing I had to deal with because again, I a lot of my friends have gone everywhere for good, bad reasons. Because you're just like, hey, I mean, I, I got to leave you guys alone. I got, I have my my family. So I don't have the team room anymore. I, don't, I have some really close friends uh, that we maintain. Um, but now it's just you and that family, to, you, know, to, to work through it. And I think there was something that you had asked as part of that transition is, how do I want to unfold my story? Hmm. How do I want to say what I did? How do I want to do? Right? I, I know what to say. I, I got my master's degrees. I, I can be a technician, I can be an executive. I can go freaking build log cabins, um, but there's a process that then I have to worry about. What am I going to disclose and what I did? You know, it was really hard to get to this point. Right, that was a lot of thinking in retrospect. But my purpose is two foes really quick. It's I want. I don't want another suicide. Right. I don't care if I served with them. I didn't serve so with them. Law enforcement, military, family member, first responder. I don't care not for having to go through things like this. And because people aren't talking, I, I will share that I went through this as much as I can share of the really cool missions that I went through, um, you know, and, and that was important. And then really I'm giving back my family and and my close friends, their life. Right. Because I took away their lives. Unfortunately, because I we, what we had to protect, organizations always have to protect OPSEC, just in basic OPSEC. Every military person has to do OPSEC. The family is who takes the brunt of right. the OPSEC because they don't understand it. They right. don't do that freaking every yearly OPSEC class. Their are class classes. you telling them not to put anything on social media, and they're like, but why? Right? So anyway.
1: Right. Eric, something you told me once that really stuck with me, um, there's something you told me about the unique... Issue that people in your line of work have, um, and, and it reminded me. I uh, just to juxtaposition this. I, I have had the nightmares in the past where uh, you're doing a halo jump and you pull your rip cord and nothing happens, and you go through all the performance measures to try to fix it, and and none of none of it works, or where you're in a firefight, and you're shooting your M4 and the gun goes down, and you go through sports you know do all the corrective measures <laughs> the gun still will not go off and i remember my dream literally breaking down the gun and field stripping it and trying to fix it and it still would not go off i think that's a dream every every ground guy goes through every ranger every seal probably has those same kinds of dreams you told me once that a nightmare you would have is that you would wake up in the morning and you would not know who you were that you would not know what your identity was because you had been traveling And all over the world, doing these different missions under different aliases, living as different people, and then you come home and you're going to wake up in the morning and you're not going to remember who you actually are. And and that's something that really stuck with me.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, the complexity of just in special operations, it's uh, for good reasons. It has to be very protective, uh, the element of surprise, right, and protect. The organizations that do special operations, and then uh, and then there's aspects when you're doing intelligence work, obviously more so. And then you mix both of them, and that and and then if you're a, a, a military service member versus an intelligence officer, that's different because they have uh, you know different authorities and different protective measures. I'm still a, an E nine, but I'm straddling this world. And so, at least from 2000 to maybe 2018, uh, at least traveling and doing stuff, um, there was so much stuff to be involved in. Um, not to sound cliche, but so many secrets that have secrets, right? Um, you know, things, you know, it's funny, things that happen in Vegas stay in Vegas. Well, they're similar, right? Things that happen forward stay forward. And then that's protecting the mission itself. And then there, you have your moral injuries. And then you have you know um, what aspects um, when mechanism um, facilitated my ability to conduct the missions I did or we did at, at, a, turn in, at a certain time and place, right And, and they were key to the success uh, to keep it simple. And so those things weigh on you um, extensively. Right, uh, it's one thing to constantly say I'm an infantry man, I'm an infantry man, and that's what I do. Uh, however, when you start getting into the grayer areas of where you know, and and, and hopefully for the audience, I know you guys kind of reflect to your o- audiences. You know, this this shit is, it isn't a video game, uh, but there are pieces that are in some of these you know these books and in these movies that that draw from reality, um, and some of the things that, that the guys and girls in, in various echelons. I've had to conduct. Standby. Can you hear me? Yes.
2: yes, we got you.
3: Hold on.
1: That's how you hardcore. I mean? How hardcore this dude is. He has his pace plan for the podcast.
3: Of course you do, bro. You gotta have a pace plan, <laughs> and so. <laughs> Sorry, man, it's second nature, you know? There's actually a pair of hardwired... <laughs> uh, so in this world of having to do all of these things and they're just not all black and white, man. you wake up sometimes, you go to sleep, and you and nightmares are nightmares for a reason. You're like, what did I do? Why can't I talk about it? Who the fuck am I? And sometimes, who the fuck am I isn't like this James Bond shit, is what was my mindset at that time? Right. Was I hunting people? Right. Was I lying to people? Was I just, did I go on this trip because I wanted to avoid my family? That's a fucking nightmare. That's yeah. a nightmare that now you got to think about, at least for me, when you're retiring, going, hey, asshole, did you really get hurt on that mission because someone sent you or because you volunteered? That's still a nightmare that I've got to in this, I have a spreadsheet. Because I had to figure out a way to do it. And I'm like, okay, line 101, asshole, you volunteered. Because your spouses at, at some point are like, all right, dude, I'm going to make up a name. Did Andy say you needed to come? Or did you volunteer? Because I heard the other spouse say that Joey volunteered for that mission, right? So, And hopefully that kind of ties back to there, it. But there's a lot of that who was I and, and that personal aspect of it.
1: Eric, can you just uh, change the uh, microphone on Zoom? I think maybe it's using the microphone on your headphones. If you can change it to the one back in your computer, like before. Um, and I, I'm going to go ahead and use the opportunity to jump up on my soapbox for for a moment here, if you'll permit me, um, because I do want to address something else that I think is unique about the position that folks like you have, where in the Central Intelligence Agency, we've interviewed a lot of these folks here on on this podcast there is a process for their cover to be lifted and for them to reintegrate back into the civilian world. Um, so that alias, that cover persona, whatever that was, there is a process for it to be lifted. And then that person can come forward and say, hey, I was in the CIA and maybe they can't reveal all the details. That's frequently the case. They may not be able to say what country they were in. Of course they can't say who the sources were that they developed. But they can tell a lot of their stories. And if you look back at a lot of the interviews we've done with uh, Douglas London, Mark Polymeropoulos, I mean, many people uh, that we've interviewed, they're able to tell quite a bit of their story Mm -hmm. and say, I was a CIA officer. This is what I did. But for people who, uh, for lack of a better term, are army spies that work in this kind of clandestine world, it it sounds as though – you folks are kind of just expected to maintain your silence forever in, in perpetuity. And, and I think that's kind of unfair in, in a number of different ways, um, including the the pressure that we put on the soldiers themselves, the veterans themselves, and their again, as you mentioned, their families, that we're just expecting this guy to just hold it all inside, all of it. And I'm not saying that they all need or need or should or want to come on a podcast like this but i think it's an unrealistic and unfair expectation to expect them to just not talk about any of it with you know their their immediate circle if nothing else
3: yeah um contract really quick can you hear me better not really <clears throat> can you hear me now yeah, yeah that's that better. sounds better all right let's do this okay uh, so no, we don't have a mechanism to do that, uh, unfortunately. You, you good? Okay, you just yep, yeah, yeah. No, we, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: Good, good. Priorities have to be priorities. Where, where, where and hmm. so, uh, w- with regards to that, um, you know, and I, and I won't uh, focus on anything from an organizational perspective. But I will tell you that, Dan, um, there is a sense of difficulty at the humanistic level um, when someone is, hey, man, I, I got hurt. Oh, I've got PTS. I've got PTS for um, an explosion and then the other. You know, I, I will share that out of my PTS claims. There's eight of them, I want to say, or ten. Uh, eight of them, eight or seven of them were classified. Mm-hmm. Okay, Eric, well, why were they classified? And now I am out of the military. How do I incorporate my family into my great get well plan? Well, part of my get well plan is why the hell are you scared of sleeping in a hotel room? <laughs> why do you have to have a gun? Mm-hmm. Why can't you fly in an airplane and you think it's going to fall out of the sky? Because all you say is if it isn't one of your pilots and, it, and you don't have a parachute on your back, you're not trusting that aircraft. Right? And it isn't just anecdotally because that airplane is going to fly. It's because we've been in some shitty airplanes that have literally, if they would have fallen, you would have been eaten by sharks or you would have been held hostage. Um, and so then there's the administrative aspect of it, right? Okay, where are all these certifications for all of this training, for all of these things that you did? Right. And then if I choose to um, articulate in LinkedIn, which has become a staple, for right your network is your whatever worth your net worth well if you don't know what to put on linkedin because it's all hush hush yeah i'm sorry 20 years as a sergeant major in the or you know 29 years or anybody else yeah you're, you're gonna get only certain jobs contract right. work right or yeah. you're gonna get something I- that maybe when you came into military and i think you men- mentioned this earlier dave You know, you might have wanted to be, I don't know, you had other ambitions in life, but you came in the military for patriotism to serve this nation, in particular, guys who came in and girls right at September 11. But now in this world, when you're trying to articulate and you don't have, for lack of better words, as we always get an SOP, right? Because we look at SOPs for MFF jumps or whatever we do. There's a checklist. There Mm -hmm. isn't a checklist. That, to me... And again, and it's not pointing fixture, uh, pointing finger. At, at this point as a veteran, I don't need to bring that nor do I need to make any excuses anymore for my family.
2: Right. I need my life back. Right, right. We need that, right? And, and that's, uh, and that's the tough thing is that when you have that, you know, uh, 22 year, or 20 year or 14 year or 10 year, or whatever it is, blank spot on, on right. your resume, that looks like a generic military resume or whatever. How do you go to, you know, Google for a head of security, head of site, you know, whatever, whatever kind of job it is for an executive level position, which you've been doing, you know, and say, I have this skill set when you can't back it up with, you know, with anything. Well,
1: and again, I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit, probably because I've had like three or four scotches, but (laughs) there's, there's that off ramp, I feel like, for the officers for like the blue badgers and the CIA for the military yep. officers in the army that they have that sort of off ramp and it's all set up for their career progression, but for the NCOs, for the contractors, they get fucked. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, for the yeah officers, I, I
1: think that,
3: yeah. uh, you know, and we've kind of, you know, briefly talked about it, um, you know, the Intel world in the military um, and in depending what you did, it just, doesn't translate easily, right? Uh, and that's not even saying, hey, you were a, for like a better word, an assaulter, a ranger, a SEAL, a recon guy. Those are things that at least you can put in your resume, And but really what, and, and I've been on the corporate side where I'm looking for people that I need to hire, and I'm like, okay, what skills did you get? Where did you apply that training? What level of leadership did you do, and what were the outcomes? But a lot of young folks are like, oh, my God, I did all of this stuff. I don't know how to translate. And I can tell you, TAPS, that program, has, ver- again, my experience, very little knowledge of how to translate soft experience, which is very ambiguous. The stuff that the Green Beret seal has had to do in the last 20 years isn't part of the standard recruiting checklist of what, of what you're going to do. And then, in, in, in where I come from in some of this intel and activities, right, there's a lot of programs, for lack of better words, that have been created in the last 20 years that guys have, guys and girls have gone to do that don't have an exit plan, right? Mm-hmm. Some folks, hopefully they're smart. And this is what I learned from some of my mentors is like, all right, man, take that training course and find the equivalent in, in English civilian speak, right? I think we talked about it. Like I went and did uh, computer network operations. So I got trained to do computer network operations at the IC and high levels while I was in the organization taking some of that advanced training, I used that to translate to civilian speak because I had learned from people prior to that. They're like, hey, man, I don't know what how to say that I did this six-month course in whatever training, even though it is marketable, but it doesn't have a code to train right. into. Right, So, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a burden. And I'm sorry, I'll, I'll just take the second that there's a lot of folks that are, I don't want to say suffering that don't quite know how to go back and 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 share, or articulate, you know what what they've been part of, um, for multiple reasons.
1: Eric, I, we're, we've taken up a ton of your time. I'm gonna try to yeah, run, run through some user questions here yeah. really quick. Yeah. Um, Brad says, any big difference between what you did and a CIA uh, paramilitary officer? Also, ever work with any? Body-centered therapy, or know anyone who did? Okay, so the first one um, uh, different capacity.
3: I'm a DOD guy. That's a CIA intelligence officer. Even though and, and, and Dave can help me out, right? We're two different things. Um, I'm an enlisted inside the military. However, when you start deploying, um, there are authorities that certain military intelligence organizations. Um, have access to to be able to conduct intelligence operations so at the end doing operations potentially similar in the back as roles um uh, different entities um but there's some overlaps uh
2: and then uh have you ever done any body center therapy or know anybody like havening maybe or uh emdr or um Uh, um i've done with a a whole
3: bunch of um acupuncture so we had some of our uh you know former 18 series deltas that came on as pas were pioneering a lot of really cool um acupuncture for us Uh, i think the hoffman cocktail they were doing on us which really really helped um, and then on my way on, as I was transitioning out, there was some, uh, EMDR, some stuff with the eyes, yeah. uh, that was really good for, for sort of therapy on the PTS side. Um, I am full disclosure, looking at some of the psychedelics. Yeah. So,
2: <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> honestly, like I said, I mean, we yeah. should, we should connect you with Sam, uh, with Sam cause she, like she's done, uh, a ton of research into it and it's, it, it, she, it's helped her out tremendously. Yep, um, I'm yeah. open to it. Um, uh, Yeah. And then e, uh, EFT is also another sort of, I guess, more body centered therapy that, that uh, people have had success with. Um, uh, Joe's gotcha. Thank you very much for the donation. Semper Fi, EDC guy, thank you very much. Jean Pierre, thank you. All you guys, BPA Izzy, thank you for your donations. Uh, Hillbilly Lives Matter. Um, hey, we're not going to ask this question about the uh, saps. Uh, so if you want to ask another question in chat, please ask it. We'll, we'll credit your, your donation to another question. Um, Hillbill Lives Matter, uh, is it better to do the job as a single man? Because I hear it as a single man's name <laughs> all the time. But sometimes I wonder if, it, if it's better not to be.
3: It depends. So there are times that, um, again, as I mentioned earlier, you're really never by yourself. You are you're always have you know, a network of people behind you from communications to emergencies to um, actually the largest part that ever helps a singleton or folks committing or, or uh, conducting an act what appears by themselves is a support infrastructure. Without those support infrastructures, you're not going to be able to do it. So there are times that sometimes doing things as an individual, doing things as a couple... Um it's what makes sense at that level to be able to accomplish that, that mission. Um, some of them obviously have to do six men or or squads or teams. Uh, hopefully that answers it.
2: I, I I also think that Hillbilly is asking about relationship status. Do the single guys fare better? Oh, got it. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. Could, but do I- the single guys fare better or... You know, I, I I would say I've seen, um, again, in the 20
3: years, at least in, in this, I, I've seen a lot of guys come in single, a lot of guys marry, um, and those that had a stronger foundation was the married guys. Yeah. Because, you know, you could be as tough as a badass as you are when you come home. You're like a little wimp, and you are going to mama to help you. Yeah. Right, because at least in my world, for my family, it was a circle of trust. And that circle of trust, that first onion or that you know lowest part of that onion ring was me, my wife, my son, and my dogs. That was it. And so when I came from whatever, they were my support network. And what we noticed a lot with the singles, um, we worried about them because they would go back to their apartments or they're going and we, we would have to pull them in. And so ultimately, no one can endure. I don't think I know very many people. That stayed singled and did this line of work. Yeah. If not, you start broaching very risky behavior. Yeah, uh, because you don't have somebody
2: to check you. Right. I mean, and and really, the guys who have like this sort of the, uh, the stronger wives who will call them out. Oh yeah. And, and yeah. No, you're right. Yeah they they are your foundation.
3: They're your reality. Even though, again, everything I mentioned that. You may not share, you may not, but they know you inside and out. Yeah. And you've got something to come home. So, in our, you know, that's my hope. And, and, you know, when you go to Sears school and you think about getting interrogating or captured, you've got to have something that you put in your mind. And mine was always, if I'm going to break out of here, I'm going to figure a way to walk. Right. Yeah. I may, may, didn't have a tangible, but I knew I was going to walk home to my wife and to my son. And one hard thing to take away from anybody is hope. Yeah, And and I hope that I would get back to my family. So unless you have something that powerful as a, as a, as a single person,
2: it's very difficult. Yeah. I, it's interesting. Most I, guys,
3: sorry, are, are older in life anyway. Most of our, our guys are 30 and above, right? So we're, we're, you know, there are no young, young folks in these units doing this.
2: Yeah. I, in uh man's search for meaning, Victor Frankl wrote about that in the concentration camps that, that, the people who had something to live for were the ones who oh, yeah. would make it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, Jackie, thank you very much. Uh, love what you guys are doing and keep it up. By the way, uh, go Navy. Uh, <laughs> T bar, thank you. Uh, what's harder, blending into a civilian population or navigating all the politics of a war zone when running a strategic mission? The navigating
3: the strategic. Because you would think it would make sense. You would think that everybody's (laughs) on the same show music for the greater good of the mission. And unfortunately, the greatest heartbreaks and disappointments that I've ever had have been home, have been going back, you know, at work or going, you know, to downtown to some entity where, for lack of better words, we had to get mother, may I, can I go operate or can we get the go uh, or the funding and then just be shot down for stupidity. Uh, and you know, you kind of figure it out, you're like, hey man, I got it listen, I'm gonna you, you will get promoted. Right? You gotta do that reverse kind of intelligence work and go, you will get promoted, let us do our mission. So the to the answer, blending in is hard, but you you, you figure out there's it's just you in that environment. The political has been, I think, in my perspective, the hardest thing to navigate. Um, it's just getting after it sometimes.
2: How how did your unit uh, deal with officers who were very protective of their careers and wanted sort of the no-failure options? Ooh. Uh, so there's a lot of briefs.
3: There's a lot of... Uh, you know, there's a lot of... Um, God, uh, like Jedi, I don't, it's, I, I don't have the right word, like Jedi mind tricks, but there's a lot the, of NLP. Uh, well, there's a lot of like guerrilla warfare, right? Like I'm yeah. going to get this guy and I'm going to get this person to believe the cause. And then that person tells somebody else and that person gets to someone else. Again, as an enlisted people, the enlisted folks that stay there for a long time, we don't ever, and this is, it goes across a lot of organizations. You're like, Oh God, I know what this person unfortunately is in their mind. They're worried about their career, they're going to ride this pony to the end. hopefully they listen to us, and what we're going to need to do as professionals is provide it in a way for them to make the right decision making process right. We're going to provide it in a way we take out the, hopefully we take out the emotions and we get to the facts and we're able to present the case for them to do the right thing and when they unfortunately they don't, there are times that they're like, "Hey bro, I told you so like right? yeah. And, and then, and and if you're young in the career in the unit, in any of these units, you are ultimately going to come back when you decide to go from a you know I don't know a captain or a major, and now you're gonna you know like we will see you again. Yeah, I will yeah. probably be here. That guy will be here, and that person that was your teammate and enlisted will probably still be in this unit. So please make the right decision because at the end we're all trying to get to the we're trying to get to the same end
2: state because. I mean, I, I mean, you guys have these guys coming in from Inscom. Like, where well, are these we, guys?
1: We we'd have them come back to us in SF as like battalion commanders, and some of them are like, like, oh, yeah, you don't really know anything about SF at all. <laughs> Why are you here?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, we 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 get them from from all over the places. Yeah, it's not intel guys. I mean, we yeah. get, you know, you get all breeds of people that come in uh, yeah. at the officer level, and I really don't care where they come from at the end because of the selection processes and all of that at the end you you start you should start with a clean slate right? right and then once we start creating those conversations and just like you know just like me or anybody else it's you're only as good as your last your last mission and what success you had and so as you start you know you, you don't want to build that hallway file right if you have right. that hallway file
2: <laughs> yeah uh connor thank you man she said thanks for the content gents uh EDC. edc uh um uh hasan 116 thank you have you run across any other cuban american sorry uh americans in soft jsoc great episode as hey
1: always. go check out a previous team house episode with ruben garcia yeah he served in vietnam cuban immigrant yep. and uh and then was involved in sot uh, yeah amazing interview oh I, about, you know i i haven't even seen that
3: actually ironically enough i have not really um I think, yeah, not, not just anyone that I've had to work with, right. Like either on a mission forward, anybody from another tier or anything that I, I build a relationship or even I did Google when I Google in the IC Google, you know, at the, whatever the the search I've like Googled my last name to see if there was anybody else. I think I, I popped up like two people. So I stopped searching my last name uh, to see if there was any other meaduses and I never found anybody. Um, I, I know. I, I, I know
1: another Eric. He'd be mad if I if I mentioned his name here. But I, I'd I'd be happy to introduce you guys.
3: <laughs> Eric, there was a lot of them. Miatuses, yeah. I, I I hadn't found Cubans. I hadn't. I, I have been blessed with a whole bunch of Puerto Rican, Mexican, all kinds of other. Bro- I've got Egyptian brothers. You know, all of the other
2: dudes that we get. But no, not 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 Cubans. Uh, did he ask another question? Do you see him? If I don't think
1: so. I think that was the last one. And, um, listen, we're almost like three hours in yeah. at this point. Eric, yeah. I really appreciate your time on a Friday. I know you're, you're out doing family stuff right now. Uh, this has been an awesome interview. I hope that we can have you back at some point. Um, this is like a really unique, uh, perspective to have.
2: We, yeah, we really appreciate it.
1: And
3: hey, I, yep. Sorry. Go, go, go ahead.
1: ahead. Go ahead, Eric. I'm sorry.
3: No, I, I just wanted to, you know, um thank you, but you know, openly also I, I do appreciate um, you know, this that this, this isn't about me. Like I've never I didn't come from a world where um Eric um really mattered. It was great the the greater mission. Um, you know, and this isn't about the organization I came from uh, and we we've, we've both have talked about it, is the folks that do this line of work Um, And I think you guys are getting at it. You're getting at sharing these stories. Uh, Some of them are cool. I wish, you know, I'd love to come back and share um, aspects of of other things that I've been involved with and been involved in or even have knowledge of uh, without compromising anything. And again, it isn't isn't about the unit. And hopefully people don't worry about where you came from, but they worry about the individual. And for you guys as a podcast, you're doing just an, an amazing job at sharing that history and capturing it and it in a way that, that is fun um, and hopefully new generations of people who wanna do this line of work. And just as importantly, family members and children or friends that have had someone involved in in anything that you guys cover glean something because I think you guys have done an amazing job uh, at, at, uh, at getting at it and, and providing that information. So I thank you. I know my family thanks you uh, for being able to share uh, my ability to share the stories, answer these questions, and and obviously not compromise uh, anything uh, into the future.
2: Thank well, you. Absolutely. we appreciate it, and for a lot of our viewers, I don't know if they understand like the amount of pressure that a per, the, like a person like you like that that we have on ourselves, you have on yourself, you know, and and you know you you want to be loyal to your your people. You don't want to, um, you don't want to be the person who who talks out of school but there are but there are also stories that deserve to be told, need to be told mm-hmm. um, and these communities have had a horrible, horrible rate of you know uh suicide, self-harm, alcoholism and and we really appreciate you like making yourself vulnerable and 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 letting other guys who might be in your position. Know that it's okay to come out and, and yeah. talk about this, and, and America, you, you know, about about what we're going through.
1: The, the American public can't support a capability that they don't know we even have. So, to talk to the the public, to talk to the taxpayers out there, and let them know that. Yeah, we do have these guys and we should support them and make sure that they're taken care of. It's an important and it's a healthy conversation and,
2: and make sure they're taken care of, you know, like you, you, yeah. it, it can't be so absolutely 100% secret that you, you can't, you, you can't even talk to the VA and get the support yeah. that Jesus. you need.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And I think that's the key, you know, and that, that's the silver, you know, and again, and, and it doesn't matter what level or the per the individual's perception, what they can and can't talk and sometimes we are our worst enemies right right? like right we will drown ourselves in a freaking shallow pool because we weren't well informed however what we can do those that are now veterans uh is illuminate the path not compromise anything but we're smart about this right folks that come from our community we're smart people we can get at it and i think the way we're we're addressing these topics and we're illustrating and at the end you're hey i'm not I'm not talking about any TTPs. I'm literally telling you what the life right. is of people who've done this work across the spectrum, what their families are, and hopefully someone's living who works at the VA, who works somewhere, and just we, we move this forward to take care so we can, at the end, actually really become a stronger nation and take care of our people because the next generation is coming. And in this world of, you know, uh, I don't want to say Google, but Facebook and all of this crap, We've got less people who want to really serve this nation. Right. And we need them to be prepared to do it. Right. And we kind of need to adjust a little bit our biases and, and help them
2: uh, move forward. So, yeah. So guys. check out um, uh, Military Special Operations Family Collaborative. That's M-S-O-F, Foxtrot, uh, C-Charlie.org. Um, it, you know, they're, they're doing great work. Eric, where can people find you?
3: Yeah. So the key one is on Instagram. So echo nine axiom um, is the primary um, one. You can find me on Instagram and it's on Facebook. Uh, and if you Google uh, now, Eric Miata is on Google, you can find me. Uh, but really on Instagram is the first one on Facebook. There's echo nine uh, ECHO nine dot axiom. And then from there, it really, there's a link tree that'll lead to and a lot of these videos and a lot of... That, all,
1: all that information is also going to be down in the description of this video. Um, yeah. Also down in the description, you'll find links to our Patreon if you guys want to support this live stream. We really appreciate it. Make sure you subscribe if you haven't already. Leave us a review on iTunes. All that stuff helps. And we really appreciate that. Uh, next Friday, we're going to have Ben Milligan. He should be here in the studio. Um... He wrote "By Water Beneath the Walls." So I'm reading this book right now. It's it's complicated, but it's a history of amphibious warfare and amphibious commando operations and what led uh-huh. to the creation of the Navy SEALs. There's some heresies in here about William Darby. We'll talk about that. <laughs> uh oh. Yeah, Ben Milligan. got spicy. Special Ops apostate. <laughs> you know, and and, and and Ben is a former SEAL, so we're gonna break his balls a little bit about hair product and things like that. But no, he, he this. Honest honest to God, this is a really good book and like I'm learning things in here that I didn't know anything about. So I, I highly uh, suggest people go out and get a copy of this and give it a read. Really good stuff.
2: Also get some boikies.
1: And I'm excited we're excited to talk to Ben next week. And Eric again, man, thank you so much. Um taking some time out of your Friday evening.
2: Yeah. We really appreciate it. Eric. Gentlemen, thank you so much.
1: And I want to do right. it ag- I want to have you on again sometime yeah, because we it's have a to lot have you on more again.
2: We want you in studio will. next time where we can tip a few back.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, we
2: will. <laughs>
3: Sweet.
1: All, All right. right.
3: Well, see you next Friday, I everyone. I don't know how this works, but I'm going to say cheers, <laughs> Dolly. I'll see you next time.
2: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
3: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
2: Ah, oh, sorry.
1: We were looking for Chumba Casino. <laughs>